the Reverend Jean Borkwin, it's Reverend Dr. Jean Borkwin, I should say, is a native New Yorker, and he has worked for nearly three decades at the National Center for Deafblind Youth and Adults in suburban New York, and 10 years at the Lexington School for the Deaf in New York City. He holds a master's in deafness rehab and a doctorate in healthcare administration, and he has lectured nationally and internationally on topics related to communication and mobility for people who are deaf, people who are blind, and people who are deafblind. He is a certified mobility specialist, a low vision therapist, and a sign language interpreter. He's been published more than a dozen times in peer-reviewed journals, including a series of six studies on this whole topic of driver yielding, which we're going to hear about today. And in addition, he is a deacon in the Episcopal Church, is a very good friend, and as a person hearing loss and total blindness, I can, that he knows what he's practitioner and has helped me deal with traffic. And with that, I want to introduce Thank you, Gene. Thank you, Karen. It's, it's really wonderful to be introduced by uh, one of my heroes, which is you. And uh, all the work we've shared at the Past Coalition in New York City. And uh, I, I would mention that I'm a person living with vision loss and hearing loss as well. I wear hearing aids and I have glaucoma, which is uh, fairly advanced. Uh, let me just dive right into the topic now uh, and get us going. Uh, Today's topic is driver yielding, and I'll certainly be, uh, we'll certainly get into what I mean by that, uh, but I wanted to start out with a little bit of a survey we did at a recent <clears throat> last year conference, the Southern Orientation Mobility Association, to give you some idea of where my profession, the orientation and mobility profession is, as far as this topic goes. Uh, we did two surveys, and I'll just point out some of the highlights, as I will throughout this presentation, about what's on the slides. Uh, I should mention anybody who wants a copy of this presentation in PDF format, please let me know. Uh, let the powers that be contact me, and I'll be happy to send you a copy of the presentation. So we did a survey at this 2020 uh O&M conference, and some of the highlights that stood out to me when we talk about driver, drivers yielding and blind pedestrians is that 52% of the uh, people at this conference, and these are engaged O&M instructors, 52% had not learned anything, about, anything advanced about yielding techniques in their own and graduate center. And 47% of those who participated in that O&M conference, 47% had not taught any kind of advanced yielding techniques in their practice uh, when they were working as orientational mobility specialists. We did a, a sort of a, a, a little screening exam, a survey, and we found out that 1% responded correctly to a, a question regarding drivers yielding at roundabouts. 2% responded correctly at driver's yielding uh, and uh, things like displaying your cane at a crosswalk. 13% answered correctly about driver's yielding 
and using a head turner and eye gaze as part of a technique to cross more safely with less risk. And 47% answered correctly regarding a driver's yielding and using something like waving a cane or wearing a reflective vest, all of those things being techniques that uh, have been taught by the profession. So in general, what we find is the profession has not really advanced from uh, the things we taught decades ago about what confronts uh, a pedestrian at a crosswalk when they're about to make a decision to cross. And not only haven't we advanced in our, uh, our teaching, uh, a lot of people aren't aware uh, that the pedestrian has a lot of control over this situation. What we basically taught is that the pedestrian stands at the corner, uh, perhaps they uh, display their cane, and when they hear the near parallel uh, surge uh, come from the vehicles, they cross at a traffic controlled intersection, of course, attempting to monitor for turning traffic. But there's no, in the standard techniques we've used, there's been no uh, attention or not much attention paid to the pedestrian having any kind of influence on that situation and on drivers. We're going to do this in two parts. The first part, we're going to explore yielding in general and how the factors in the environment may impact the degree to which drivers may yield to pedestrians. When we talk about the uh, built-in environment, we're talking about things like the traffic lights and the uh, curvature uh, uh, at the corner, uh, how wide the radius is, or the uh, geometry at the intersection or the sounds that are going on at the intersection or the signage that is placed at the intersection. We don't have a lot of control over that as blind or, or low vision people. We don't have a lot of control over those things. The second part of the uh, presentation will be about how we ourselves uh, can be, think of ourselves as empowered when we are at a crosswalk and we want to cross. Well, let me start with a little bit of uh, a definition of uh, a, a few facts about why this is. Over the past several decades, we've had about four or 5,000 pedestrians killed every year. We've seen a recent and kind of scary rise in that statistic. In 2019, there were almost 7,000 deaths from uh, pedestrian vision crashes, and more than 75,000 pedestrians were injured crossing the street. Now, those are some general numbers that might give us pause to think about how much driver yielding is critical to how we get through the world. Pedestrians must be able to analyze. So I'm going to give you a quote. Somebody wrote this. Who is it? Oh, it's me. Pedestrians must be able to analyze levels of risk in order to make decisions. Assessing the level of risk can include determining the likelihood that drivers will yield to a pedestrian crossing a street. To some extent, all pedestrians depend on yielding behavior of drivers, whether by intention or circumstance and regardless of the laws and regulations. So every time a pedestrian is hit by a car, it's obviously because the car didn't stop. The pedestrian uh, in many situations has the right of way, but nonetheless uh, can be the victim of that kind of a collision. So there are lots of variables that are in play when we get to a crosswalk and 
the things that we can control and can't control. I'm just going to go through the things that I call environmental built-ins, those things we can't control. I don't want to spend too much time on this because if you can't control it, your choices become, uh, become less. You can decide not to cross. You can decide to cross someplace else. You can decide to get assistance. The options are there. There's always an option. But uh, it, these are situations where you don't have direct control over what's going on. So let's look at some of these factors quickly. Uh, weather and lighting are two of them. In 2018, 26% of pedestrian deaths occurred in crashes between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m., and 24% occurred between 9 p.m. and midnight. There's an indication from a 2013 TRB report, uh, Traffic uh, Review Board, that for every 100% increase in street illumination at night, the likelihood for a driver to yield is increased by 4.5%. So lighting is important. In another study in Canada, 15% of all incidents occurred on wet roads when it was raining. Keep in mind, 15% of all travel by pedestrians is not during rain. So that's a very high percent. So weather and lighting are big factors. We do not have a lot of control over that, except to make those choices like not going out and traveling during during bad conditions. Signals are another big factor at the corner that we don't have a lot of control over. Standard traffic signals are probably the best built-in feature that causes drivers to yield. A study conducted during several months at five busy intersections in Fairfax, Virginia found that on average, only one motorist ran a red light in 20 minutes at each intersection. So signals have a very high rate of compliance from drivers. Today, we've got a lot of non-standard traffic signals going on. We have things like lead pedestrian intervals. We have exclusive pedestrian uh, phasing at corners and those kinds of uh, traffic signals that are implemented in modern traffic engineering can be very confusing for blind and low vision travelers. And so even those things that are reliable and standard, like traffic signals, are becoming more complex and in many ways less accessible to, uh, to blind and low vision travelers. Uh, of course, APS are uh, accessible pedestrian signals are a solution to that. But as we know in the USA, they're not they're often not installed at intersections. One of the largest factors on whether drivers are going to yield or not uh, is speed. Speed has a huge impact on how drivers uh, how drivers respond to the presence of pedestrians. And uh, there's a couple of charts on the screen right now that show the relationship between the speed of the vehicle and the uh, amount of yielding that happens when uh, drivers uh, encounter a pedestrian. And every one of, one of those uh, graphs, which we won't go through one by one, there's a dramatic uh, decrease in yielding as the speed of the vehicle goes faster. We don't have a lot of control in the standard O&M world, the standard way we learn to cross streets, over the speed of vehicles. 
There are other factors that we can't control, like expectation. The driver's expectation of a pedestrian to cross at a particular location is affected by the number of pedestrians normally at that crossing, as well as the features such as the presence of a marked crosswalk or signage. So if you're crossing at a place and you know it's a place where pedestrians are not usually present, you haven't heard or encountered other pedestrians at that place, that increases the risk that the driver is not going to yield for you. And we'll get into some of the science of that as we get into the, uh, into the techniques that can give you control over this. There are other factors like crowds. The number of people crossing at the same time will affect the amount of drivers yielding to you as we go through things, as we go through uh, the steps to get across the street. There are different geometries of the intersection. How is it built? Where is it placed that impacts the amount of driver yielding? At places like mid-block campus crossings, studies have shown that drivers yield 80% of the time. While at an uncontrolled crossing at a downtown intersection, when I say uncontrolled, I mean there are no traffic controls there. As little as 5% of the drivers that pass by will yield to a pedestrian waiting to cross. There are T intersections and roundabouts, and the, each of these types of uh, configurations, what we call uh, intersection geometry, each of these affects how much drivers are going to yield. We don't have a lot of uh, control over how much uh, a driver is going to yield because we can't control the geometry at that intersection. Factors like the curb radii, how wide or how narrow that curb for the corner is, where you're, where you're waiting to cross at the crosswalk, the wider that curve is, the longer and the uh, it curves around the corner, the faster a vehicle is going to be able to go. Many of these factors are really subconscious to the driver. The driver doesn't think about these things. The driver reacts to the uh, to the conditions on the road, the geometry. And so we're dealing with a, a thing where driving is almost automatic. And in certain circumstances with certain variables, drivers will yield more or less. Just an example of how sensitive yielding is for for drivers and how not under their control things are or conscious control. I'll, uh, I'll give you one study which was done in 2015. And you may be surprised to know that bias can influence, racial bias, bias can influence the amount of yielding that drivers have. In a study back then, they looked at black pedestrians versus uh, pedestrians uh, who were not black. And they found out that pedestrians who were black were passed by twice by twice as many cars and experienced wait times that were 32% longer than white pedestrians. So, and there's a graph here showing that the, there's uh, some bias in the first car yielding to the pedestrian. And when it's the second car or later, the yielding to black pedestrians actually is less than half as uh, often as white pedestrians. So we're talking about a topic that uh, is quite sensitive to a lot of built-in factors that we cannot control. There's also studies on signage and what signage does. We did a study, Donna Salberger and I, uh, and we looked at 
the impact of a sign at a yield uh, at a yield crosswalk. That's a crosswalk with a yield sign. We put up placards that said uh, deafblind pedestrians. And at, and at an almost identical roadway, we put uh, we left the yield signs up without deafblind pedestrian uh, signs. We uh, one of our deafblind consumers thought that this would cause the traffic to yield to them because they couldn't hear or see the traffic. And in fact, when the signs were put in, the deafblind pedestrian was quite happy. Uh, she said she claimed that the drivers were, of course, yielding to her much more and she felt much safer. The problem with that is that the results of the study were that the signage didn't help at all. In fact, in terms of raw, of raw average, the crosswalks with the deafblind pedestrian signs had less yielding by drivers than the ones without the signs. There are many types of signs. They get various amounts of, of yielding, everything from uh, children at play sign, uh, slow, blind child area. Those signs tend to not do what we think they might do. So, so I'm going to pause for a moment at this uh, at this point and ask if there's any questions about any of the stuff I've talked about that's sort of not in our control, those factors that are in the built-in environment. And Holly, if you can let me know if anybody has burning questions, I'd like to take a few now to make sure that what we're talking about and that the topic is clear. Raymond Racer. Okay, yeah. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I'm a guide dog user. In your research, uh, have you uh, come across any statistics talking about how guide dog handlers are, are, are respected or disrespected uh, when you come to a crosswalk? Raymond, uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, there's very little done in this area. Uh, what there is one study that has multiple results, one published study that did uh, did, did uh, research at different kinds of intersections. And in every single one of the parts of this study, the uh, user of a guide dog, uh, a guide dog team, uh, got less yielding than a person using a cane. And in one of the situations, I think it was a low uh, traffic density area, uh, the person with the dog actually got less yielding from drivers than an ordinary non-blind user. That is somebody standing at the corner waiting to cross who didn't have a cane or a dog. So those small studies indicate that uh, dog guides uh, teams in general get less yielding. Now, I've talked to a number of dog guide uh, master trainers, and they have concurred or backed up that data with real life stuff. And it was their general impression that that is true. I can tell you that uh, there is the mitigating factor that uh, many dog guides are trained by schools to be aware of traffic and to do a traffic check and to uh, go ahead with intelligent disobedience if the uh, dog detects uh, impending danger. So that's the, kind of a factor that may balance some of that increased risk out, but we haven't done the full studies on that. Uh, you know, you might want to talk to Lucas or 
people, uh, Lucas Frank or uh, Ellie Carlson, uh, Carlson, who's worked with a lot of people in these circumstances. But that's my best answer. It's a great question. I think we have time to take maybe one more question. 518-517. This is Mary Beth. Um, actually, I was going to, to um, ask you that question, but I was wondering if you'd done any studies of um, the how um, the, you know how they have the signs like duck crossing I used to live in a place I'm a guide dog user where they had you know the sign that said goose crossing and I could be standing there in the pouring rain with groceries it was right by Hannaford okay by a grocery store and they they would cars would slam on a brace for the geese but but they would not yield for me I was wondering yeah, if you had any studies uh, about Animal Crossing. Well, there, there are I, lots of... I, first of all, I, I want to say that some of the techniques we're going to talk about in part two will be applicable to dog guide users, and they can use the techniques, but they, uh, but we haven't studied them with dog guide users, but they will be... Uh, you can... You can judge for yourself whether you think some of these techniques are going to work, uh, those techniques that don't require a cane. Second of all, there are tons of studies on this kind of signage. Uh, you know, when people yield for geese, it's usually because there are geese there. I lived, I, I worked uh, in a town with a geese crossing. Uh, the, the question is, those signs that are posted to warn drivers, that your problem is that the time you'll get hit is those times when the driver doesn't notice you. Like drivers will yield to pedestrians and geese if they notice you. But when we look at the science we're going to talk about, you're going to see the problem is when they don't notice you. Signage like that, blind child signage, signage that says uh, deaf child in area have been studied up the wazoo. That's a technical term. And uh, those signs are sometimes effective for a short while when they're first put up, but the long-term uh, results of studies shows that they make absolutely no difference in crash statistics in the area and no, no difference in injury in the area, no difference in mortality in the area, and no difference in yielding in the area. They just are not things that are very effective. If they give you a full sense of hope, if you put up a blind child sign in your area because you have a blind child and you think that's going to help and you change your assessment of risk based on it, that's a harmful thing. That's a negative thing because that sign in study after study has been found to be ineffective. And just as I, I mentioned earlier, the sign about deaf-blind crossing uh, signs uh, was totally ineffective in our study. So uh, a lot of uh, I, th those are things I, based on what I know, I would never recommend. So we haven't done it directly. We did it directly on deafblind people and yielding, but uh, all the other studies from the traffic field say they don't work. I think what I'd like to do is if other people have questions, let's hold off because I'd like to get into part two and we are going to have uh, more opportunities to ask questions as we go along. Okay, so... What are the uh, phenomena that influence drivers' responses? Why don't drivers yield? Wouldn't we all like to know that? Who of us have not cursed a driver uh, as we were crossing the street? If you haven't done that, then, you know, uh, I'm in ordained life, but you're the saint because I think we've all had this experience. And the assumption is always that the driver was careless or 
the driver was uh, unskilled or the driver, as I've heard from my students, especially my deafblind students, who told me many times over the years, those drivers just want to kill me. And uh, that response is understandable, uh, but not helpful because you know, yelling at that driver for the moment is probably not going to do anything for the other you know, 10,000 drivers you'll encounter in the next half hour. So let's look at some uh, major reasons why drivers uh, cause injury uh, and kill pedestrians. So here's some general estimates. Uh, you might think dry, drunk driving is a problem, and that is indeed true. Some of the studies, and these are generalities based on me looking at a number of studies in the field, about 30 or 35% of drivers that kill people uh, have some kind of intoxication involved. The, uh, about 35 to 40% have the driver distracted, although I'm not sure what that means. Uh, being distracted, does that mean they're actively engaged in other activity or were they distracted by uh, something in the environment. Uh, remember, when a driver looks out into the driving space, he's got a million details to that he, he might attend to, and we'll talk about more about this in a minute. But uh, it is uh, an automatic process, what the driver is going to see and not see. And it is absolutely normal for a driver not to see a pedestrian at a crosswalk. Our vision system is not a, a video recorder, and we do not see everything that is in the environment. Only, uh, only a tiny percent of drivers, interestingly enough, that are not intoxicated are uh, ever charged or even given a ticket. So, distractions are the number three cause of pedestrian fatalities, and a lot of that is electronic devices. And that's probably why we've seen an uptick in pedestrian uh, vehicle collisions. Uh, so that is a concern, but it's not a concern that we cannot influence. So even if you look at the amount of intoxication that might be involved well, with a number of people that are distracted by uh, electronic devices such as a uh, smartphone, even if you add those numbers up and you look at them different ways, there's a large gap in that in those statistics that say that the interaction between the driver and the pedestrian is unexplained by any specific reason. The driver just fails to yield. And that is indeed a category that they count for failure to yield. Well, yeah, we know somebody just got hit. The driver didn't stop. Thanks a lot. We know that there's this huge number of failure to yield. I would put that number at 100%. But uh, in any case, there's lots to be uh, that is unexplained. And we're going to look at it and explain it. Okay. Let's look at the phenomena related to seeing a pedestrian and see what's required and notice and process intention. Driving is automatic and mostly unconscious. Tom Vanderbilt wrote this great book about how we drive and why we drive. And I recommend it to everybody, Tom Vanderbilt, V-A-N-D-E-R-B-I-L-T. He said, Driving, for the most part, is what psychologists call an overlearned activity. It is something we're so well practiced at that we're able to do it without much conscious thought. 
Drivers, even when they go back and reflect on what they've done, are mostly driving with unconscious automatic responses that they have learned through hundreds of thousands of experiences. Usually in driving situations, decisions are made by the driver that have to be done so quickly and so automatically that if they depended on conscious thought, like an, an actual reasoning process, they wouldn't be able to be done because conscious reasoning is, is far too slow to make those kinds of decisions. There's also social theories and empirical research that drivers, and uh, the, I, not my favorite term in the scientific literature, but drivers are yielded to more if they, if they, if they uh, initiate a dispute dependency response. If they see something that they automatically feel is a dependency cue, the driver will be more likely to yield. That is, drivers uh, are more likely to yield to people who are perceived to be dependent, like mothers with baby carriages or people who have physical disabilities or people who are blind. So there is some kind of automatic response from drivers that say, I need to yield in this situation because uh, the pedestrian depends on the yielding. That assumption is, of course, not always right, but it is helpful. But there's a response from drivers when they have an accident, when they hurt somebody or when there's a near call. And I experienced this when I was a driver. I don't drive anymore because I have, uh, I'm, I'm uh, nervous about driving with my visual fields as they are with glaucoma. But when I did, I had this very response. It's I never saw her crossing. I never saw that pedestrian. The pedestrian just appeared there. And that is a cause of a lot of accidents. The human visual, there's a thing psychologists call the human vision cognition system. And it has only so much capacity to attend and to be aware of things in the driver's viewscape. There's a limited bandwidth is what we tech savvy people would say. There's only so much it can see. And what has to happen for a driver to really understand that you're there and to understand your intent is that they not only see you, but their attention is drawn to you and that that is processed on a certain level of consciousness. That all has to happen for the driver to respond to you in a meaningful way. So at any given moment, a person's senses are bombarded with so much information that the driver can possibly take in and through, uh, and through attention, the person selects only subsets of that information for processing. Information does not re always received. What a person is, sees or what's out there in front of their eyes is not always processed into their awareness. And that's a basic concept to remember. So let's go on to what drivers do see or notice or become aware of. There's a phenomenon called attentional capture. A stimulus, attentional capture happens when a stimulus in the environment, which could be you standing at the corner, it could be a flashing light, it could be a sign, that stimulus alters attention away from the prevailing attention and is drawn to another object without the driver's volition. To put that in another way is you may be standing at a corner. If you're just standing there 
and there's nothing unique or not ordinary about you, the driver may be looking elsewhere, maybe monitoring for the traffic, maybe looking at other pedestrians. They may not be, their attention may not be drawn to you. And so they may actually not see you. And study after study in the lab and in real life have shown this uh, attentional capture to be a real phenomenon that happens when uh, people are driving. Attentional capture is increased by the features of an object. In this case, you being the object, you and your dog or you or your cane. And those factors that are high on the list of things that gain uh, attentional capture are salience, movement, singletonness, which means how unique you are in the environment, and the sudden onset of putting something that suddenly appears into the driver's viewscape, into in front of them. These are key variables that would draw involuntarily. In other words, the driver doesn't think about it. Their attention is automatically drawn to you. If you can use some of these features that increase attentional capture, in your uh, crossing techniques. I'll give you an example that you you might relate to. You're in a fairly crowded room and there's a lot of noise around the room. Of course, people are talking and you're standing pretty far away from somebody on the other side of the room. And all of a sudden you hear your name. Somebody says, Holly, why is that? Why, out of all that noise and sound in the party, did you hear your name being mentioned? It's because your name has a feature in auditory attentional capture that, without volition, draws your attention to that speech. And that's the same kind of phenomena we're talking about with the vision and the driver. And I know I've experienced that. I'll be in a crowded room and somebody will say, well, that SOB gene, and my, my attention will be automatically drawn to that person. There's also a phenomenon called inattentional blindness. And this phenomenon is one that uh, where items that are not expected or not of interest or not meaningful to the driver are just not perceived by the visual system. There's a famous example of this. Uh, maybe you've heard about it. It's the uh, gorilla study. There's a famous experiment where a uh, People are asked to pass around black soccer balls, and they're just passing them to each other in a circle. Only one of the soccer balls is white. And so the participants in this, maybe there's five or six people, they're in a circle that they keep passing these soccer balls. Everybody has a soccer ball. You pass the black soccer ball off, and you're supposed to count every time you encounter the white soccer ball. So you're focused on these balls going around in a circle. In the middle of the experiment, somebody in a giant gorilla suit comes through the, uh, through the middle of the circle and, and like beats their chest and then passes through the circle and walks on. When they quiz people after the experiment, something like 30% of the people passing the soccer ball never see the giant gorilla pass through their circle. It's an amazing uh, experiment that shows the possibility of inattentional blindness, that is not seeing what's right in front of you. I'm going to pause here and take some questions and ask if we're kind of clear about what we're dealing with 
uh, when we talk about the human cognition system and how the uh, how what drivers see and how much they see and how they see can impact your situation when you're trying to cross the street. Jean-Marie? So I live in Eugene, Oregon, <clears throat> and um, what I have learned how to do is <laughs> when I'm in an intersection, people must think I'm crazy, but I kind of dance at the corner and, you know, twirl my cane around and stuff. And I, it, it tends to work <laughs> to make people Jean. know that I'm there. <laughs> Jean, Jean, Jean Marie, uh, first of all, I mean, I I only have a B.A. in psychology, but I'm going to pronounce you not crazy. (laughs) Second of all, we're going to look at the actual techniques and the actual studies where we use different standard techniques and and see if you find any value in them that you have. you have I, found something that works. Right. When I'm at a corner also and someone, I know someone's going to turn, I turn and I, I look directly at the car and I put both my hands up to make stop and I say, don't turn on me. And they generally don't. Well, Jean, you're half right on that. You're half right on that. And uh, we'll, we'll get to that, Okay. You are definitely half right. And one of the things you're doing is probably meaningless. uh, And part of the things you are doing are not. But I'm going to hold that until we get to the studies, okay? I'm going to take one more question now, if I could. Larry Johnson. This is a fascinating subject. I want to tell you that we've been concerned about this for many, many years. In fact, uh, going back some 10 years, uh, we did a a campaign to promote driver awareness of um, uh, pedestrians with disabilities. And uh, we were somewhat successful because I think uh, all of what you're saying is true, but it also, I think, helps if drivers can be reminded to be looking for situations where there may be pedestrians wanting to cross the street. So we did uh, some public service announcements uh, on television. Uh, we did a, a 20 minute uh, uh, PowerPoint presentation, which we shopped around to a lot of different cities here in, in Texas, and it had some positive effect. We also were successful in finally getting a uh, don't text while driving bill passed and a uh, and another bill passed to uh, cause a, a fine or a penalty and community service if a driver were to injure or kill a pedestrian who is visually impaired. Unfortunately, in Texas, if you hit or kill a pedestrian who is not disabled and you stop, there is no penalty. So, in effect, there's no incentive for the driver to even worry about hitting a pedestrian. So, Larry, Larry, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm going to interrupt you and respond to what you said. Yeah. Uh, Only for the sake of time and moving on, because I've got quite a bit more to say. Uh, Public campaigns and enforcement are great. They often have a temporary effect. Sometimes they have a long-term effect. They're They're very intensive things to do. They're expensive. They take a lot of time. They, they, uh, and they take a lot of effort. 
parts of them are effective, parts are not. You may have seen some significant changes. My family lives in Texas. I'm in Texas all the time. I I, uh, I empathize with, with the experiences down there. But I'm talking about situations, and all of that is, 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 is good, but I'm talking about situations where you can influence the driver something like 300% more yielding, not a moderate yield, and something that's under your control individually. You can talk to drivers, you can tell them, you can make them aware, but in the moment when they're driving, it's mostly unconscious. So you may have affected their unconscious responses to a certain degree, but that in my mind, I, I've not seen a campaign that has made a significant difference. We, we have zero, uh, we have a plan zero in many cities now. New York City has gone hog wild on trying to reduce traffic accidents. And we have campaigns and stickers and all sorts of things going on. And our traffic uh, collision rates were up the last year, in the last year. So, yes, good stuff. It's got to happen. It's good when a locality puts an effort into it. But I want to talk about when you yourself can make a difference in that situation, a serious and substantial change in the risk you're taking. So I appreciate that, Larry. Thanks. Let's, let's look at some of the studies. I think I've got like another half hour. But let's take a look at what we got. And then we can, if we have a lot of time at the end, that'll be really great too. So conditions that are likely to be noticed and understood are when inattentional blindness is low, attentional capture is high, items are in the attention set. Each of us has an attention set. That is things we know are, we have to attend to. Remember that example about your name, hearing your name in a crowded room? That's in your attention set. If something's in the attention set that triggers attentional capture, that's going to be helpful. Guess what's in people's attention sets? A long white cane. A long white cane is one of the most recognizable things uh, on the planet. And so, and finally, the meaningfulness of what you're presenting to the driver is, does it have some meaning? Does it give the driver some instantaneous and unconscious uh, reason to understand your intent? And also, what, what helps to, for things to be noticed is the movement and sudden onset. And what, if you keep these in mind, you'll see the results of the study that will make sense at this point. And like Jean Marie, you too may start dancing at the corner. Okay, I'm going through some uh, slides here first. Okay, first thing I'm going to tell you about is a study we did. And when I say we, this is usually Rob Wall Emerson, who uh, is in charge of the O&M program at Western Michigan, and Donna Sauerberger, whose uh, presentation earlier today you might have gone to, and Janet Barlow, who is... Uh, a goddess in the O&M field and environmental access, names you might know, and uh, little old me. I was usually the subject, the person standing at the corner waving the cane while they collected the data. So 
this slide I'm looking at now says, does the cane have to be white? And I'm going to say to you, before I present the results, you can use whatever color cane you want. I'm not the cane police. None of us are. You make your own decisions on cane color. And certainly there are times when you're using a cane and the purpose of that cane is not to cause drivers to yield. So, you know, you want to do a hoo-ha and, uh, and uh, use a black cane at a tuxedo event, uh, go right ahead. I'm just sharing with you the results of what happened at a, at a crosswalk when somebody wanted to cross the street and we looked at the color of the cane. We looked at four different colors. We looked at a green cane, a yellow cane, a black cane, and a white cane, essentially. Some of them, the black and white cane had the little red strip at the bottom. But other than that, <coughs> the subject in the study did the same thing over and over and over and rotated the color of the cane through each uh, data for each data point in the study. And I'll just give you the results. The person using the green cane, that would be me, got 18% yielding. This is a yields from a turning car at an intersection. The car gets the green light. The pedestrian took their cane and flagged it out into the street, expecting a driver to yield. And with the green cane, 18% of the folks uh, driving those cars yielded. With a yellow cane, 31% of those folks yielded. With a black cane, 50% of the drivers yielded. With a white cane, 68% of the drivers yielded. So just to make the, the biggest comparison, if you're at a corner and you're using a green cane and say you flagged your cane because you wanted the driver to see you, so you moved your cane out and tapped it twice before you decided to cross, uh, you've got 50% more yielding, twice as much, uh, well, three times as much yielding, three or four times as much yielding as the person with the white cane. And I'm, I'm just presenting some bar charts on here that show the difference between, we, we measured yielding in several different ways and the bar chart shows that. Where you stand at the corner can have an influence on yielding. And this is another indication of how sensitive the driver's automatic responses to you can be to just what you do and where you stand and what you do with your cane. Uh, a person standing a foot from the curb at a crosswalk, they did a study, not my study, and 45% of the drivers passing by yielded to a person standing a foot back from the uh, curb. 53% yielded to a person standing at the curb edge, and 60% yielded to a person standing just one foot into the, into the uh, crosswalk. Not recommending you stand in the crosswalk when you are waiting to cross the street and deciding when to make that decision. But what I am trying to say is stepping way back from the curb while you wait to cross is probably a bad idea because it will affect how often the driver notices you, processes your presence, and yields. Uh, head turning and gaze. We did a study in several circumstances on whether turning one head towards the driver and making believe you were making eye contact. This is not real eye contact, but it's, it's a simulated eye contact. So in the study, we turned towards the driver 
as the driver was uh, coming towards us. And then, uh, the, another variable was we would turn our head back and forth, monitoring the driver uh, who was about to turn into our crosswalk. And in another study, we uh, constantly monitored the driver who was uh, waiting to turn as we were waiting to cross. That is, we turned our head back towards the driver uh, several times. And we looked at these conditions that the pedestrian could do. And whether we were just displaying a cane with no head motion, or we were turning our head and acting as if we were uh, monitoring that car, or we were turning our head and, and doing a gaze, in other words, a simulated eye contact, uh, or we were turning our head at the last moment when we heard the traffic surge and we turned our head towards the driver. There was no statistical difference between any of those situations. The yielding just didn't change significantly uh, by mean or median uh, when we looked at the amount of uh, yielding that that head uh, crossing. So if you turn to the driver and you cannot make real eye contact, uh, it's none of those techniques of turning and looking towards them work, or it didn't work in our study. We did a big study of 375 trials where, 300, where about 400 times I left the curb when I was told to, and I stepped into the curb and proceeded out into traffic as a driver was approaching on a collision path with me from my right. In other words, the driver was in the far lane. I stepped out and I just walked into the street under various conditions. And that driver was approaching and we, I stepped out so that I, if I just proceeded into the far lane, I would have gotten squashed by the car. And this was a study. I don't know how we got away with it, but I did about 400 trials. About 375 of them were good. And here's what we found. Now, remember, I'm aggressively stepping into the street on a collision path with the car coming from my right. We looked at uh, different conditions. We looked at just ordinary clothing, no cane, nothing. And we got about 41% yielding. We used a giant orange flag, me holding out a big orange flag and waving it in front of me. And the yielding went from 41 to 62%. I wore a bright orange vest and in that case, the yielding was 49%. Those three numbers, wearing ordinary clothing with no cane, flagging a big orange flag in front of me, or wearing a bright orange vest are not statistically different. So we didn't find a, an orange flag or wearing a, a vest very effective at all. We did find an effect from the cane. When I stepped out into the street with a cane in my hand, the yielding, whether I was waving a flag or using a vest, the yielding in this situation where I'm on a collision path with the driver went way up to the high 80s or, or, or around 90%. So we definitely saw a prominently displayed and moving cane in a situation when the pedestrian is on a collision path with the vehicle coming at them will make a difference. So we knew that the cane was somewhat effective, but we wanted to look at the presence of a cane and use of a cane in different situations. And so we did a situation at a, an intersection where the cars would be turning right into the crosswalk where the pedestrian is about to cross. 
The pedestrian is waiting for the onset of the walk signal, and the driver is waiting for the onset of the green signal so that when that happened, we looked at how often drivers would yield to that pedestrian who's about to step out into the same space the driver wants to go through, that is the crosswalk. And in those situations, we looked at four different situations. We looked at just simply holding your cane out, displayed so the driver could see it. We looked at holding a cane out so where the driver could see it and putting our hand up and in sort of like a stop gesture towards the driver, which was behind us on our left. We tried waving the cane up, that is flagging the cane, we call that. And we looked at a thing called a reversible step. That is when the pedestrian flags the cane and at the same time takes one safe step forward into the crosswalk and then can check the situation and can reverse that step into the crosswalk if they want to. And I'm going to cause, call that the reversible step. That is the pedestrian believes it's time to cross, listens for traffic, takes one step into the street and flags that came back and forth. And we wanted to see under those circumstances how often drivers yielded. This is a situation a lot of us in, say, cities or places where there's a traffic control, uh, traffic signal, uh, find ourselves in. So we did the cane display, the cane flag, the reversible step, and the hand-up gesture, that gesture that Jean-Marie talked about, about holding her hands up towards the driver. And we looked at, uh, in places where there were, uh, we looked in several situations I think we were in, we were in we might have one of the southern states when we did this. And we did some trials in, in New York City and around the, and some studies in Michigan and some trials in Michigan. Here's what we found in a nutshell. We looked at the yielding under control conditions. That is just the person wearing clo clothes, no cane, no dog. Yielding when was around... 30%. In one, uh, by one uh, measure, it was as low as 8%. But in the two other conditions that we measured yielding, it was about 30, low 30s. When we did the cane display, the yielding went up to an average of something under 40%. The difference between cane and no cane in that situation, and I'm talking about a cane being held out and displayed while the person is waiting to cross, in a prominent position where the driver could see it if he see if he attends to it there was no statistical difference between somebody standing there with just ordinary clothing no dog no cane and having a cane so the cane display was statistically insignificant the cane display is what i learned to do when i was in mobility school it may be what most of you learn to do when you're standing at a crosswalk you know, go to the crosswalk and, and now uh, analyze the intersection, get ready, put yourself in a ready position, put your cane out, listen for the traffic surge, or if you can, uh, look for the visual walk sign. And then when it's your turn and you think that the traffic is yielding, just go. It does, the presence of the cane in that situation makes no statistically significant difference. It makes a little bit of difference in a number of studies, but it doesn't make a great difference. When we did the cane flag, 
yielding went up to an average of about 59% on average. I'm looking at three statistics here. When we did the hand up, holding our hand up towards the potentially turning vehicle, the turning driver, when we put a hand up towards them, right before we were about to go into the street, yielding went up to, I'm looking at the statistics now, maybe an average in the high 60s. When we did the reversible step, that is, when we uh, took a, a one reversible step into the street at the same time, flagging our cane out into the crosswalk, yielding went up to something between 66 and 91%. That is a two to 300% increase in yielding from the driver's who are expecting to turn. That is from a low of maybe 32% of driver yielding uh, in our control condition to over 90% yielding when we did the reversible step. That's a 300% increase. Uh, there's a picture on the screen now of me do, stopping a car at a crosswalk at a roundabout, and I'm holding my hand up towards the car. And you'll take my word for it, the card stopped. So let's look at some, uh, you know, I'd like to stop there and see if there are questions about that, because that's a major study. Do we have any questions? Mitchell, are you doing talking lights? Uh, what do you mean by a talking light? The talking lights that I've seen on streets sometimes where you push a button and it's in a, across the street. Yeah, that's an accessible pedestrian signal. It should not be talking because the speech message is not recommended for a lot of reasons I don't have time to go into. Uh, it, it should make a, a different kind of sound. But uh, the, every study on accessible pedestrian signals uh, tell, uh, say they are highly effective. The only thing that accessible pedestrian signal, APS, does is tell you when the walk signal is on. That's all it does. It, it doesn't make you safer. It doesn't stop turning cars. Uh, it doesn't make the driver more aware of you. Its sole purpose in life is to, it, it gives you the sound, either by rapid tick or by speech method, when the walk sign goes on. And it does that through most of the walk sign. I'm simplifying this a bit, but that's its only reason in life. And of course, knowing the moment the walk sign goes on is helpful. It's very valuable information, but it's just giving you accessibility to the visual si signal. And every study that's been done shows that that, that will increase, uh, uh, that will reduce the risk to the pedestrian. But going, uh, I remarks on that now, uh, I, I don't want to go beyond because that, that's an entire two-hour lecture. 1,502. Could you, could you please, uh, Jean, describe the, the way you fl the flagging of the king and the way that was effective along with the uh, irreversible step? Please. Yes, I could. I've got a video coming up for those who could access it, but and, and I'll show it and describe it. But I'll just say for flagging the cane, usually what that means is you start in a, a ready position of the cane being displayed on right handed. So I display the cane out from my body and the cane on my left toe and my hand uh, leaning towards the left. So I'm holding the cane tip to toe and the uh, 
handle of the cane is held out so it, the driver behind me to my left can see it and to flag it you move the cane about waist level and you tap once on the right side and then move the cane up to about waist level again and you tap the cane once on your left side that's how i do it as a right hander so it's cane being held out at the time you want to flag it's tap to the right tap to the left and then you would usually pause to check, do a traffic check again to see if that is effective. Uh, it, with the reversible step, you're doing the same thing, except you're taking one step out into the street. Now, that set step has to be known to you or, or but you listening to how the traffic is moving. You should know that, that you should already know that step is, is safe. Like, you know, it's not going to put you in the direct line of turning traffic. That's true most of the time. Most of the time, pedestrians, almost all the time, pedestrians take a step into the street. If you're at that corner and you feel that the cars are turning in a way that put them almost on the sidewalk, then you would choose not to do that. Uh, so, but that's the flagging. That's the reversible step with the flagging. And of course, the hand up, if I can describe it again, is you're displaying the cane up. But when, right before you want to cross, you're taking your hand, in my case, my left hand, and I'm pushing it out in a stop motion and holding it up in that gesture towards the driver to my left behind me. And that's a technique that might work with door guide users. Some of the other things won't. You really can't, as far as I know in my discussions, can't do a reversible step with door guides. You can't keep stepping out and telling the dog to go and then changing your mind. So you can't do a, a reversible hop up or a reversible forward command and keep stepping back that's not that's not healthy for uh for the dog but the hand up is the one thing that you might be able to do uh physically that would increase yielding uh thank you for the question kevin shell awesome thank you great presentation this is very informative i um was very interested when you were talking about the part about the color of the canes um and the differences there I typically don't use a white can. I use more of a kind of either a black one, a blue, purple, or yellow. Um, could you quickly, um, uh, I was kind of a bit distracted when you were going over the stats at, at that specific point. Could you quickly remind? Yeah, I'm not gonna, I, I won't go back on the slides, but the, the, the green cane got about 18% yielding. I think the, uh, the green got 18, the yellow got 38 the black got 50% yielding and the white got 68% yielding. And that's because of what we talked about, that uh, vision cognition phenomena of attentional set. If the, it doesn't matter. The, it's not the intrinsic value of the cane being white. It's that that's what's in the driver's attention set. That's what gives them the cue to attend to you. It's a, it's, it's a, a culturally laden concept because I'm sure if if uh, you know if the if the first canes in the world back when uh, they started in England and in the United States were uh, all yellow, then the what would be in people's attention set would be the yellow cane. But as as society is now, the white cane gives you uh, about three times the yielding that uh, a green cane, a dark green cane, would give. Good question. Any other questions? Diana Olivera. 
Well, thank you so much, my God. This has been so helpful to me. Um, I'm new to Virginia, and I moved from Florida, which is pretty flat. And uh, I live uh, right to where uh, the intersection of Leesburg Pike and George Mason Drive, which is a very, seems to me like a very dangerous intersection. We don't have any... Um, um, what do you call this? This um, lights with the the, the 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 sound or nothing here. So that's one of that's one of my my next tax tasks. Now my question to you is um, how how do I contact you or how do I get to um, advocate for that in our um, area here? Because I'm really since I moved here a year ago, I never was um, able to cross Leesburg Pike. And I have to sometimes get an Uber or get Metro, which costs me right. some money to go across the street because I'm afraid to cross it. Diana, there's a couple of solutions. One is uh, there are things like crossing cards and signs that will definitely cause drivers to help you cross the street if there are no pedestrians. But going to accessible pedestrian signals, APS, I want to say that a hundred times, but I don't have the time. You can contact me, the powers that be at the convention, have my information. If you write to me, I can, I'll be happy to help you advocate for installation of APS. I have to warn you, APS are no federal law nor any traffic engineering manual mandates that they have to put APS in for you. They just it's not law. It's not uh, approved. It's in the draft public right-of-way access guidelines for the federal government, but that has been, it's been in that draft status since the early 90s, and it's not law. So I know I'm running out of time. You also One minute. Con contact no, no. us at, at the Past Coalition in New York, where Dr. Gorgi and I have worked on advocating for APS uh, quite uh strenuously for the last dozen years or so. Any other questions in the 30 seconds I have? Linda Faust? Well, I'd like to see the white cane law be enforced, especially after I heard all the data how people are programmed not to pay much attention. And Linda, I'd like to me, hear more about the talking traffic lights as, as okay, well, wanna, why you don't you uh, agree with them. I, what do you mean I don't agree with them? APS are great. Every study shows an APS is good. Why would I not agree with you having no, access to the No, I don't know. Uh, maybe signal? I just uh, didn't hear you right. Okay, so about the yeah. white cane and, law. And, well, you, there are you. White cane laws can do whatever they say. There's no, there's no enforcement mechanism. Enforcement is long term. Enforcement is expensive. Enforcement and public, uh, public outreach is difficult. I'm asking you to take control of your situation, empower yourself with your own techniques. Do other? Do you know if other mobility instructors are getting trained, like you suggested, how to use the cane, so that I could get some, uh, you know, kind of one-on-one experience uh, on how to hold the cane and be safe crossing? That's a great. That's a great question, Linda. It's all of this is in the literature. I spent half my retired life now doing these kind of presentations. That uh, we have our first textbook out that mentions driver yielding and how that can happen. And so that's uh, we're trying to put that in the field. Uh, it hasn't been part of our standard training. Uh, so with uh, many of us. People like Lucas and Karen have been trying to get this into the O&M profession. I teach a course at a university level for 
person uh, to train new O&Mers and trying to get this information into the field. So it's an excellent question. And anything you guys can do to uh, help get the, the word out there, because tr- truly people trained 40, 50 even people trained last year, it may not be in their O&M curriculum when they go to school. Thank you so much. Our next speaker is Barry from and he has all kinds of electronics and all kinds of things. And if you're looking for things that you can't find, he can probably find it. And his wife has a, a site for things for uh dog tree uh dogs guide dogs so without further ado i'll let barry take over thank you and let me just set this here and we're going to start talking about three different kinds of products today we are going to talk about electronics we're going to talk about some things about dog products for both handlers and for the dogs themselves actually to put a leash on the handlers um, and we're going to talk about also, we're going to talk a little, a lot about leather products, because those are the three things that Guide Lights and Gadgets does. Um, we started about seven and a half years ago when Kay had decided that after I had done some guide, some um products for blind people over the years, the first talking prescription bottles and the first talking infrared thermometer back in 2005, I'd taken a hiatus from it for a while. And then Kay and I both met each other and decided we wanted to do a business together. So in 2013, we said, let's find these three areas. We started with just dog products of various types and electronics and gadgets. And about a year later, we ended up in the leather business because we ended up looking at a product that we had gone to get in the flea market in Florida. And we looked at that product and we liked it. It was actually uh, a pretty unique kind of wallet. And that led us to a manufacturer and that led us to another manufacturer. And now we are involved with three major leather manufacturers. One of them coincidentally being in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, where we live, which is actually a company that makes motorcycle products. Not the, not the cycles themselves, but they make clothing and they make accessories. And it's not the genteel stuff. If you walk in there, you see some really interesting things like the whips, the chains, and the bustiers. That's in the front. But their leather products are just about the best leather we've ever seen. Because if it's good enough for a biker to throw from a bike, it's good enough, as we joke, for a bunch of blind people. I will tell you, though, that the day Kay and I went in there, which is now about five years ago, the first day we met the people who owned it, it was a little strange. Uh, they were taking products out of our hands as fast as we'd pick them up because I think they felt we were going to contaminate them. And of course, they had no, they'd never, as, as we call it, when blindies met bikers, it was a very strange day. But basically, a lot of products, a lot of relationship in five years. And now they bring us stuff, they call us about new stuff. And we have found a source for the kind of leather products that literally you cannot buy anywhere else. And that's pretty cool. And I'll go into a bunch of those as well. But I'm going to start. I'm going to start on the gadget side because, well, we are gadgets and guidelines and gadgets. And we'll start with gadgets first, and then we will do some leather, and maybe then we'll do some doggy thingies. The last year, and it's not really coincidence. It's something I've been interested in for a long time, which is uh, my career as an attorney was actually very much in insurance and healthcare. I used to, I've run hospitals as a CEO, and I was involved in just about every kind of healthcare facility in the United States, either operating it or consulting to it. 
And so when we made the first talking infrared thermometer in 2005, because most of the talking thermometers up until that point were very slow and very inaccurate, we got one produced and then we found ourselves in a lawsuit because the company that was basically the dominant one didn't want speech in a competitive product. And they basically pretty much shut us down by suing us for patent infringement. But I've always been interested in talking medical products because we need them. We certainly needed them during, obviously, during COVID. And we have been fortunate, maybe something, maybe the, the stars aligned properly, but we had the fortune of meeting up with a manufacturer that makes basically medical grade products, both talking and non-talking. And they do not sell on the internet. They don't sell on Amazon. They are business to business. They sell to hospitals. They sell to durable medical equipment companies. They sell to pharmaceuticals. And yes, they made us their first major distributor because the CEO in the US of their company got the vision that this stuff would really work well for people who have issues with needing things to talk. So we have put together a talking medical bundle. And that medical bundle is comprised of three different products. It is comprised of an infrared non-contact talking thermometer that takes your temperature in about a second. It is comprised of a quite rapid and pretty accurate blood pressure meter that has a number of features. It's a cuff unit and has a number of features that are lacking in a number of other units that have been out there. And we've sold them as well. And the most recent thing we've done, and we found the right partner for this, is we have put together a talking oximeter and an accurate talking oximeter that actually measures blood oxygen level as well as providing you your heartbeat. And those three are a medical bundle. And what I'm going to do to start is, as luck would have it, and I hope this actually works, I'm going to demo each of those for you. I've got recordings for all three. So we're going to, and I've, I've got them pre-recorded, but it's the actual real time of the product. I'm going to start with the thermometer. Thirty-four. Whoop, hang on, there we go. Volume. Volume. Fifteen. Ten. Nine. Come on, product. Yeah. Well. Oh. There we go. The body temperature is ninety-seven point eight Fahrenheit degrees. That took one second. I just pulled it off and it's doing it again. The body temperature is 97.8 Fahrenheit degrees. And it will take 10 seconds and shut off. You know what's remarkable about that? That's the first unit we have ever found that gives the same temperature twice in a row. Most sure. of the infrared thermometers are highly inaccurate because the infrared sensors are made in China. These are not. They are made in Taiwan. The company is scrupulous because they sell to hospitals. They have been supplying companies that deal with COVID on a daily basis. They happen to do both talking and non-talking products. And we are extremely fortunate that that relationship came into existence. So that is their first product. It is the one I like. It is so simple to use. You take it out of the box. It looks like a large squirt gun with a hole in it. You put the hole about um, to your basically your thirst, um, basically the first um knuckle of your thumbs, I call it, or Kay calls it, uh, the first bend in your thumb, that should give you about an inch, or you can actually touch your forehead, but you don't need to. All you do is squeeze the trigger. It turns itself on automatically. It takes a temperature in one second and shuts off automatically in 10 seconds. It uses two double A's, and one of the other things that we've done 
because it's in line with the thinking of our company. When we do products like this, we believe in audio tutorials for that kind of product. So we are fortunate that Lisa Salinger, who many of you know, formerly of Mystic, now teaching at Hadley and a wonderful, as, as good a tutorial artist as there is, she's done tutorials for both the blood pressure units and for the thermometers. I've done the unit for the oximeter myself, the tutorial, because it was simple enough that I guess I could even do it. So that one's a little bit shorter, but we either email those to you or we send them on an SD card if that's what you need, because if you're going to use a device and you're going to use a medical device that you want to be accurate, you need to know what the buttons are and how to use them. So that was the thermometer. I'm going to switch to the blood pressure unit and let me sort of move this along and we're going next year. Okay. It'll take a minute to do it. Probably about 20 seconds. I'm getting it on, as a matter of fact. You, this is one where you wrap it around. So you're actually putting the... I can talk because this is actually recorded. Um, this is a cuff that fits one size fits all from very small to 3X. Most units come with small, medium, where you have to get medium, large, and extra large. This does not do that. It is one size. The other thing to see about this, besides using four double A's, it doesn't come with an AC adapter because if you need to plug it in, you don't have batteries, you can actually plug it into your computer or a power source using a USB cable, and it will work that way as well. These people. Your blood pressure is systolic pressure, 151 millimeters of mercury. I'm having a bad day. I just did this right before we were doing the program, so that may explain it. Um, I'm usually in the 130s, but also I did not spend as much time setting this up because I normally take about two minutes to do it. But I've tested a lot of different blood pressure talking units. We like this unit. Um, the thermometer, well, I'll tell you about that in a minute. Let me go to the third one because in a way, this is the most recent accomplishment. And I have to give credit to somebody for this. One of our customers who I call a friend called me up one day from Pennsylvania and said, Barry, we cannot get a talking oximeter anymore. And the one that was out there is terribly inadequate. It was made by a company called Concord Medical. Some of you may own it or have seen it. But the product, is, it's, it's, it's not something most people have tested or felt comfortable with. I'm not commenting on that. I just know that this person said to me she needed to have an accurate reading because of some really serious medical condition she had. I wasn't going to do this, folks, because we have turned 70 recently. We've done manufacturing of a few products. Some of you may remember talking power banks about three years ago, and we've made our own bone conduction headphones also. But it's pretty hard to find a partner and per work it through all of the issues that you've got to do. You've got to be prepared to pay production costs and upfront costs to sort of generate the assembly line to get a product made. It's, it's not like you simply call a number and they make a product. Well, we were lucky enough to find a design for the oximeter that was a quite high quality and the company only had one requirement that we buy enough of them that they would be willing to start up a production run to actually do them. And 
as we joked, the first time I asked the thermometer people how many that they needed me to order, I said, "Will you be happy if a big order for me would be about 100 the first time? And she said, you mean 1,000, don't you, as in 100,000? No, <laughs> we're not quite in that. We're not in that business. Yeah. But when we, when we got to the oximeter side of the business, I asked them and they said, we will start this up, but you've got to put us in a minimum order of 200 units. Well, within our community, that's not a small order because it's going to take a while and you are doing everything up front. They came up with a tremendous product, although it's going to get better within the next year. I'm going to demo that because that's been with us about four months now. And it is really, we've, we've calibrated this in a physician's office with a non-talking oximeter and the accuracy is within 1%. 11. So we still start measuring. Count down 30 seconds. And this will take, this does take 30 seconds. Usually it's going to take about five seconds in the doctor's office, but this is a little slower. That's why it's not a commercial. That's not, it's not a, a, a unit that again, that would, that we would put in a doc's office. Um, but it is got the accuracy that we needed to have with it. And that is exactly where I am and need to be. And that's, uh, those are the three talking medical products. And what we have decided to do, we started this in November because we realized that there are people who are still needing these during the pandemic, is each of these products are $50 each. But we have put two or three together. Two of them for, with shipping is $100, including shipping, as I say. Three of them is 146 including uh, 148 including shipping. And so we have lowered the price of those basically to 40 each instead of the 50 because we have to ship pretty much. We, ha we have to do pre prepaid shipping these days because of COVID. We drop stuff in flat rate boxes. So we have reduced the cost of those. Normally, if we, if we did them at 50 each plus the shipping, it'd be about 170. It's 148. We will do two for 100 and one of them is 50 and they come with the audio tutorials. So that is sort of the wrap up of the, of the three talking medical products. And that's something that's really, and, and actually I should say one other thing about this. Um, again, one or two of you may know that about three years ago, Guidelines and Gadgets entered into a, what I will call a collaborative arrangement partnership with Mystic Access. And I love working with Tim and Chris, uh, especially now that they're newlyweds. Like, well, I'm not really going to be that anymore because it's like almost it's six months. But we have worked with them on various products. They are distributors for our medical products. Um, they happen to do stuff more online than we do. They do e-commerce. So if you want to order e-commerce, rather than calling us, you can deal with Mystic on over, over the internet. And they have those products set up as well. And the costs are the same. There's going to be no difference. But we do ordering by phone or by email because... Four years ago, I came to the conclusion that in selling product, products to our community as blind people, that sometimes, no matter how you describe the product on the web, talking about it was not the same as seeing it, or even reading about it, I mean. And so we came to the uh, saying, wait a minute, we're getting returns because people think they're buying one thing and they're buying something else. And of course, especially now, that gets complicated with all of the issues of personal use. So... 
we decided to take the e-commerce portion of Guidelights and Gadgets down. We do have a website. It's www.guidelightsandgadgets.us. And we change products quite frequently, so it's never going to be 100% up to date. But Kay and I try pretty hard to keep descriptions of probably um, somewhere between 50 and 100 of our combined products. Um, she doesn't do all the dog toys individually because there's a lot of dogs and a lot of dog toys for different kinds of dogs. And besides, the fun is in sort of exploring and talking those through. So most of our customer contact is done via phone. As a matter of fact, one of the principles that we really believe in, and this may be because I've been in this situation as a consumer myself, if there's a product that I don't think is going to work for you, I won't sell it to you because I know you're going to return it because I'm trying to make a guess to help you facilitate what is something that will meet your specific needs. Let me give you a very specific example. We are a distributor for Orbit Research as our AT guys, and we are a national distributor like they are. But what we do with our customers, and that's because of my own personal experience, that if you buy an Orbit Reader 20, 20 plus, or 40, I am going to strongly, I can't force you, but I'm going to strongly urge that you take a second year warranty for its additional cost. Why? Because the way those Braille displays work, there is a good possibility, not that they're defective, but if you have a problem in the second year, it is going to be costly. A motherboard is $350 on a $700 machine. To avoid that and anything else, you are probably better off with a second year warranty. So far, and I, I will tell you that in one particular state where we had four individuals by Orbit readers, 20 pluses over a period of time, all of their units needed service in their second years, and all of them had taken out second year warranties. It's just a belief system that if we're going to service you as best we can, that's a requirement of how we do business. I'll give you a second example related to Orbit. When the Orbit writer came out, and I like the product just as JJ does. It's a great little Braille keyboard, but it's not a product that you're going to pull out of the box and start using. We decided the extra mile was in two ways. Number one, we needed to have a tutorial, an introduction to that. And we engaged Lisa Salinger in her usual spectacular job to do about a 51-minute presentation on getting up and running with your Orbit Writer. We sell that as part of the package. When you buy an Orbit writer from us, you don't buy the writer. What you buy are three things. Well, you buy the writer, you buy the tutorial, you also get a case that we actually made where we took a phone case from our motorcycle people, found a way to attach commercial Velcro to it so that you could actually walk and use the Orbit writer if you wanted to take a note. And, it, and you can flip it back into the phone case and store it. But if you want it while you're walking or just standing somewhere or just flipping it out on a table, you pull it out. The Velcro is on the back of the Orbit writer and on the outside of the case and you flip it into it. We also include in our Orbit bundle, which is a $150 bundle, one of our neck pouches that allows you to use your phone hands-free because you may also want to carry your Orbit that way. And so we have taken the accessories piece to that. Recently, I have started selling the bundle separately. We don't break it up, but if people have bought an Orbit, particularly if they bought it, if they, if, if they have bought it 
and they really want the accessories, we will we'll have a discussion about whether the accessory bundle works for you. Um, we haven't been able to do it in all cases because our supplies are somewhat limited sometimes. But again, preference goes to people who purchase the Orbit Rider from us. And that's the way we want to add value. And that's the way Kay and I look at most of our products. You can buy lots of things through Amazon and through other companies, but sometimes you want some assistance with facilitating I won't call it expertise, but maybe insight as to what may work for you. I'm going to stay on gadgets for a little bit before I go into dog and leather products. And I want to talk about a number of other gadget areas that we have covered. We don't, we don't do a huge number because we don't specialize really in blindness products per se. We find things that work. And once we find them that work, we make use of them. However, the next product I'm going to talk about is a blindness-specific product. For the last five years, I have been meeting up with a gentleman from a company in China that actually invented in a partnership a daisy player, a player like the Victor Stream, although uh, they have sold it. It was not a United States product. It was primarily meant for Europe and actually Canada because they have different formats of daisy books. They don't use our standard with bars. But this player has a lot of features. And I kept saying to them the last two years, folks, if you're going to put an internet radio and a podcatcher in it, at that point, there might be an interest. Well, they did. And again, this has been an ongoing discussion of a relationship to be created. About a year and a half ago, and again, with the consent of Mystic Access, because this is, a, this is an entertainment center. It's not just a book player and a music player. It, it uses an internet radio. It uses a podcatcher. It will actually has a sound editor, and it makes very high-quality recordings. It has a very high-quality speaker. It has reminders. It has timers. There is an entire tool chest of features in this little device that's about two-thirds the size of a Victor Stream. I asked him and Chris to put together a tutorial, exhaustive tutorial for this product. So when you open it, if you're going to listen to the 11 hours of that tutorial, and that was, I don't know how they did it. That was like, that was, that, I, I don't know if they've forgiven me yet for that three months, but it, it goes through every feature on the Evo 10. And the Evo 10, besides, it, it does not have Bard. The thing I will tell you up front, it does not play Bard. It does not play Audible but it does play Bookshare and it does play MP3s and it will give you internet radios and podcasts on a database. It is a rechargeable battery unit, which means I will say honestly that the battery is not necessarily user replaceable, but you're probably going to have three years. If this thing drops dead on you in six months, I'm going to end up giving you a new player because that's basically what we need to do. But I want you to hear the Evo because the reading quality, and I saved the best for last. Why do I care about Bookshare? I care about Bookshare because the voices that are put in this player are the voices that you are familiar with with Amazon devices. It, it uses the Evona voices of Joey and Sally. And I can't think of anything better to read a book, especially when compared to a Victor Stream. I've got, I think this is, let's see if our player is on. I think, and by the way, this is also Wi-Fi. It updates itself automatically. It updates the time when you turn it on. There are a lot of pieces in this. Let me, uh, let me start a book reading. The associate, the accident, you, the accident. Now, it has daisy levels. I'm going to go to daisy level two. The accident, the accident. One, if I'd known this was our last morning, I'd have rolled over in bed and held her. But of course, 
If it had been possible to know something like that, if I could have somehow seen into the future, I wouldn't have let go. And that actually can be done with variable speed. Um, it's got very, the, the as Chris said when he first heard it from Mystic, he goes, that's the best speaker in a portable device I've ever seen. This device is only about three and a half inches long by about two and a half inches wide. Um, it's very rugged and it comes with a bunch of accessories. We took the player and said, we need to add things to this product because there are things that people are going to need. So you will get not only this headphones that you get with it and the microphone, you will get a second set of headphones that we have actually carried ourselves as a separate product made by iLove. They're called iLove 324s. They are quite high quality wired earbuds and people have even used them for podcasts. They think they're good enough for that. We love them. We bought 500 pairs of them, so we better. I've probably got about 50 left. And at the end of next year, it could be finally they will be gone. But we include a second pair. We also include a 32 gig SD card in it. This player already has 16 gigs of memory. There are a few units out there that the, the manufacturer moved to eight gigs when they had a chip shortage. We're about to place another order for product. And if we have enough interest, we will place an order for another bunch of 16 gig units. One of the difficulties for us as other companies is the custom situations with supply chain. The last time we purchased a bunch of these products of the Evo 10s, we got hit with a $40 surcharge per unit. We absorbed 80% of that ourselves. And I can't do that again. I'm hoping that the, the price will stay. Right now, the product is a $250 price product. You will get a second pair of headphones. You will get a leather case. You get the player. You get two cables. This can also, by the way, be used with thumb drives as well to read. It will play MP3s. It has a very good music player and equalizer in it. So you can do an awful lot of things. The tutorial, um, and actually, if you're interested in the player itself, we the tutorial is... I, I believe Mystic is still selling it separately because, and that will be taken off the price if you buy the actual equipment. So if you want to spend, I think it's $20, $25. I don't remember exactly, but if you want to buy the tutorial and then decide you really want the Evo 10, um, we, um, what Mystic will do or what we will do is make sure that it comes off the player because we figure you're making an investment to find out if this is something you'd like. Again, it's not going to play Bard. I didn't want to take the six months and lots of money to do it. And it doesn't play audible books. But as of yesterday's announcement that some of you may have heard that Microsoft has discontinued the audible app for Windows, which means I don't know how people are going to be able to continue making use of the Victor stream with audible, but it's about to have come extremely more difficult. Now, some of you may not have heard this. That was announced yesterday that they are discontinuing the Audible platform within Windows, and that's going to make it so. So we are left with either Android or, of course, iOS for reading Audible books. So that is our Evo 10, as it's called. Let me move on briefly to headphones. Headphones are sort of the thing that uh, everybody's particular about them. We don't want to carry a huge supply of them, but we've, we wanted to carry our things that are unique to particular situations that we as blind users find ourselves in. And I'm going to go through about four or five of those. The first one, and it's basically my, my, my favorite, the most popular that we have right now. For a number of years, we distributed a Plantronic single ear headset called the M180. It was high quality. It had good volume. It had easy to use controls. We had had an audio tutorial for it done by Mystic. But 
Plantronics continued a whole bunch of their headsets last year, including this one. So we had to go looking. And what we have come up with is something that universally, when people get it, they are going, this is so much better. It actually is raised buttons for each function, volume up and down. It talks on and off. There is a button to mute it during Zoom so that if you want to basically not have to go through your iOS device, but just mute your listening, you can actually mute the headphone. It is a single ear reversible. It is an over ear. It is extremely comfortable with an earbud that lays flat against your ear. It doesn't go all the way in. It's, it's an over ear. Um, you can, it, I call it something you can wear all day, and I have. Uh, again, it is, it's interchangeable right and left ear. There is a boom microphone in it as well. And this, this is a $50 unit. And we have, once we started this about three months ago, because I looked for a long time, we tried about 10 different units before we settled on this. And actually what happened is both Kay and I liked it about to the point, And then a few other people liked it. And we said, you know what, that's going to be the unit we do. So that, that's the one single ear unit that we do. We also do a Bluetooth unit for people who want a low cost, high quality Bluetooth headset. I suspect that some people are listening are familiar with the company Beats and Dr. Dre. I like Beats headphones. We all do. Except Beats headphones are often prohibited. Except about a year and a half ago, Beats made a new product called the Beats Flex for iOS. And they're a Bluetooth. They're a wired headphone. They, they have a wire that goes between the two earbud pieces with the very controls on a very lightweight cable, very robust cable. And the sound quality contains the same Apple chip that are actually contained in the first version of Apple AirPods. Well, these started at $79 a pair. That's what you found them on Amazon. And I liked them when I bought them, but I really wanted to carry something in Bluetooth that would be something that would be high quality. You could use for like listening today, if you were listening to this program all day, you give you both ears and also have the controls you needed forward and back and track and pause. Well, we found a wholesale supplier as we often do, and that turned into a $40 product for Beats Flex headphones. We have a limited number, probably 10 to 15 pair of them left, but this is a really, really good value. They're approximately now, I think, what Amazon has carried them for, and we can't do any better than that. So those are Beats Flex headphones. I want to talk about two. We carry some others, but I want to talk about two more. I already talked about our headphones that are wired, our iLoves that come with the Evo 10. We make them available in what we call a package of one of our squeezies, which is our little container that one or two of you may have seen for storing things. It's the old leather, this change purse style, squeezes at the top. It's about two and a half by three and a half inches. It's great for thumb drives, SD cards, cables, or headphones. You want to keep stuff in one place and have it not go away. And of course, then I get 10 or 15 squeezies and I have to sort which one is in which. But the, we supply those with a pair of the wired iLoves for um, basically at this point, it's $8 a pair and it's uh, four pair, I think, for 20 at this point until we run out. So we're, 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 doing, a, uh, we're doing a combination because we've got about 50 pair left. And it, again, it comes with the squeeze container and the headphones themselves. Another had two kinds of headphones that we carry. 
I like to sleep while I read, or rather I fall asleep when I'm reading. And one of the difficulties has been is finding something comfortable. There are sleep phones and they're very good, but they're a mask or they, they're a band that goes around your head. I wanted something that laid flat on your ears that you could either use in one or both ears and that was flat enough that they would lay on your ears and you wouldn't notice you were wearing them. We found them and they're a pair. They're a very, they're a very specialized wired headphones. They're over ear. It's only the one pair like this we found. They are made by JVC and they are $25 a pair. And if you want something to sleep with comfortably and you don't mind having a wire, this works extremely well. The last thing I'll briefly mention, if there are other things you might be interested in, like some higher end ones, we can talk. But the last thing we have discovered, many, many people complain about earbuds falling out of their ears. And the reason is that the tips are too large. They don't fit properly. Particularly that comes to women. We have found a company that manufactures earbuds that are made for women, specifically with extremely small ear tips. They come with three tiny tips. They're not going to fall out. They are, they are much, they would work with kids or they would work usually with many, many women have found these really workable and they are $20 a pair. And basically, if you say the women earbuds, that's what you're going to get. That's going to take me through headphones. Let me now move into leather. Oh, one other product before I leave gadgets. A couple of years ago, I had I bought something that has turned out to be a really major staple in our lives in our house. I didn't know I'd need it like I do. We call it a sound box. We have found, as many of you have, that if you're using a Victor Stream or a Track or another audio product, you need more volume. I am dealing with Meniere's disease, and I really need more volume just to listen to my stream on a daily basis. This is a device without wires that uses magnetic induction. You put this little box, all it is, is little square, little rectangular box. You'll put your stream or your other device on top of it, and it will do a job of amplification. And it's pretty amazing. And I'm actually going to try and show you this. Online bookshelves, NFB Newsline, 128. All right. Let me start reading something. Breaking news. Search results for Corona COVID-19 virus January 21st, 2022. Wow. Yep. Underscore zero one underscore twenty one. Notice is required for copy. All I did is drop it on the box. There are a number of different models of these. There is a stereo model. There, this is what I call the base price model, which is a thirty dollar model. It uses um, three double A's. You can plug it in with USB. There is a small grounded hum to it because I'd like it grounded better, but at medium volume and above, it works really, really well. Um, there are a number of specialty kinds of sound boxes that we've discovered. There is one, there is one very high quality, which is the original made by a company called iFrogs 12 years ago. They're almost impossible to get. I can get several of them about once a month. I get them and they're a little bit more money because they basically are the original as opposed to some of the, what I will call the licensed models. But the one I just showed you for a $30 model is really adequate for amplification of your stream you can use it with your phone although some people especially with iphones have claimed they've had some echo with it so it's really on a case-by-case -case basis i'm going to move away from gadgets and i'm going to move to leather products for about 10 minutes and talk about bags um 
I never thought we were going to be a bag family, but Kay and I have one th many things in common, but one of them is we like leather and we like leather bags. And when, when we came together as households, there were probably about 200 little bags that sort of moved in as things we used to move. And so, and most of them are still here. So it's pretty natural for us that when we started to find the high quality of bags from both Marshall Wallet and also from um, our motorcycle company, which is Jam and Leather, we said, this is something we're going to do. And what we concentrate on, I'm just going to talk about a couple of different styles because that's probably the easiest way for us to go. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is Braille display cases. I am real as a heavy Braille user and Braille technology is expensive. And one of the things that has concerned me over the years is many of the displays we buy. It's not just the display, but it's the back of the display. If you bump it, they're fragile. And there are cases available by executive products, as we know. Some of those cases are extremely expensive. We wanted to find a way to do some things a little bit differently. And so we have concentrated on tailoring our display needs to the particular devices. The most exciting thing we've done in the last year is what I call the repurposement of a concealed weapons carrier, literally, into a Braille display protection 20 cell case that is as good as we have ever seen. And you can use the display in the case. It's actually, we take out the gun holster. You don't need it in there. And we put Velcro as we put on our orbit cases to even give it a more secure fit in the case on the back of your display and on the one, one, one um, side of the case itself. And you can actually, it, it looks, think of a very large hardcover book. Well, not large, maybe seven by 10 inches. And they, people just say they often look like a Bible, a hardcover Bible. They have a shoulder strap. They have a wrist strap. You can close this thing up and the padding is so heavy duty along with the accessories compartment that is included, you can throw this in a bag and you will not have to worry about your display. This is far different than just putting your display in a bag with a particular case around it. This is a protective travel and use case for about 60% um, of the price of an executive products case. They are $70. We call them the, the gun braille display case. We are looking for a 32 display model. Right now, we only have a 20 but we are out there searching. We also have a number of other display cases. We have one particularly good case for a Victor, um, for a Braille Note Touch Plus, which is also almost a form-fitting case that also gives you accessories pouches, but this case really fits very, very easily into it. And that is, uh, that is a $50 case. And that's because now that's not a, that's really not a use case. That's a travel case. So if you have a display that you want, I mean, we take the time to find something that is going to work for you. Just like we carry, we carry a phone case, for example, we carry two kinds. We carry a holster case and um, a very protective um, case that you can either wear it on your belt or wear it as a holster. Or we carry a second case that are from our motorcycle people again. They call it the toughest phone case in America. I think they're right. It is a very heavy-duty cowhide. 
It has one compartment for your phone and it has a second compartment that you could carry a cable or you can even carry a small power bank or an accessory with you, a headset or something. This is, a, it's, it's a $20 case and it's the kind of case, again, it comes from the bikers and if they can throw it from the bike, we're pretty feeling that it's pretty safe. We use them ourselves. The other broad categories, we have lots of shoulder bags. As a matter of fact, Kay and I have just come across a very, very beautiful case that we are using for devices like tablets. Perhaps you have bought a Mantis Braille display. You want something extremely protective, but also very soft. This is a multi-layered leather case. It's a shoulder bag. And we are going to find, if, if, if there is something you want to put in something, we will find a bag. Along with those, and I think I'm going to do a couple, well, two more things in leather. Number one, backpacks. A couple of years ago, we, we were perusing our favorite store. We were in the motorcycle place. And we found something. We looked at it and looked at it again and said, what is this? It's first, it's a backpack. No, it's a purse. It's actually a combination purse backpack. What I love about it. It's a nine by 12 backpack. It can hold an iPad as a backpack. If you zip the straps together, the two shoulder straps become a shoulder strap for a purse and you turn it from a backpack into a crossbody purse. A really, and this is again, a heavy duty cowhide bag. It's got a couple of small compartments, but it's, it's more of a rucksack type. We also carry one large backpack. It is a 17-inch all-leather heavy-duty rucksack, one main compartment with a drawstring and a zipper flap. That's and You can treat these, by the way, for water, water repellency with a leather guard. And we, can, we suggest Cadillac is the particular spray that people use with it. But th this pack is a lifetime pack. You have one of these, it's going to last you five years. Um, these, these, these packs are $100. But I'll tell you what, you go into a store to buy a backpack these days, you're going to find something that actually may cost more than that. It is a, it's a 17-inch heavy-duty backpack. There is a description on the website. And if you're interested, you can call and talk to us. I want to talk briefly about pouches. The product that we sell the most of with leather started about five years ago, coincidental with the time that Ira was starting out, because we needed a way to use our phone with services like Ira and Be My Eyes. And we needed hands-free things. We needed a way to carry our phones safely and securely. And people were using lanyards and people were using plastic pouches. If it's leather, I like it. Our first pouch is a two compartment pouch, two phone compartments actually, different sizes, they're graduated, that will pretty much hold any iPhone that you've got. But it's, it's a very soft pouch. It, it goes around your neck. You can bring it all the way up to your neck or keep it all the way down at your stomach. So it makes it very easy to keep the camera on the outside. There is also a full width, full length compartment in this four by six and a half pouch that you could, again, you could put an orbit writer in it. You could put a wallet in it. But it is a soft pouch. It's, 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 it's not a heavy duty pouch. It's going to use you for your phone and take you where you're going. But if you want durability, as many people did, and this is, we still have these. They are the last of our $15 neck pouches. Show me something else you can buy in leather for $15. There aren't many things. We upped it a little bit to a $20 pouch that has a neck, that has a Velcro closure that you, 
instead of a snap. It has two compartments also for your phone, but it's a little bit sturdier. So it's going to be a little bit more long wearing and that uses a strap. The first pouch we dis I discussed, some of them use a strap and some of them use a paracord. Some people don't like a paracord around their neck. If you want a $15 pouch, we have a few left that use straps and we're going to run out of those. But again, if you go up $5 more, you're getting a slightly larger and a little bit of a better pouch. So that didn't solve everything, but we were sort of working our way through different types of pouches. Then about six months ago, we started making breakthrough into higher end pouches for things that you wanted to really use for all day. And we have found two things, one of which we call a gadget pouch and the other thing I call sort of an everything pouch. The gadget pouch is on the same principle as our heavy duty made in America, toughest phone case in America. It's got five pockets. It's about six and a half, seven inches. It's about seven inches high by about five inches wide and about three and a half inches thick. It's got five separate compartments. It will accommodate any phone style and you can put other things with it. It's not as light as the other very thin and soft and flexible leather pouches. But if you're going out for three hours, three or four hours, you want this. That's a $40 pouch because it's, it's the kind of premium leather and cowhide and it works. It's again, it's the one thing you're going to use for a couple of years. But several months ago, as we were shopping and I, I give this one to Kay again, we were, we were trolling our motorcycle store and she found another pouch. And this pouch in some ways for us takes the cake. It is the pouch that is ideal if you have a large phone. If you have an iPhone 12 or 13 Pro or Pro Max, if you have one of the large Android galaxies, this is the pouch you want to keep your camera above it. It has two full width and length compartments that are about five and a half by seven and a half inches, but the camera can stay up. There are also smaller compartments on the sides if you have a smaller phone. But this is our, I, I call it our everything pouch because it pretty much is going to work with everything. So we've got the entry-level pouch, the one level up for $5 more. We've got our gadget pouch, which is 40 and the everything pouch that is 30 There are lots of other purses and bags. And again, it's a little bit too numerous to mention. But in the last couple let me double a minutes let me turn hey are you still with us i hope uh can can Left. you hear me am i yes. am i in? can we unmute yes. can, can we am unmute k and we can talk a little bit about doggy i'm here i'm here uh rick can you hear me now no not yet i'm here i'm here we can, hear you. can you hear me now i'm here yes oh, we hear God. you Oh, oh good. good. I made it. I made it. I'm so glad. All right. Thanks, um, Kay. I'm sorry I took most of the time no, as I usually do. Well, you know. Usually do, but I know the mouth of the South here. We got, we got yes. about five to ten minutes, I think, probably max. <laughs> Thanks, dear. Um, along, the, along the line of the leather, I just I just want to mention also um, some of these uh, things. He did mention purses. Um, I'd, I'd like to mention the, the quality of the leather. Um, the feel of the leather is it, it varies from pouch to pouch on those, and uh, there can be some color variation as well. So, for those of you who are color people, it, it may make a difference. 
Um, I also wanted to mention, I have, and I have for years, this is my absolute favorite waste pouch that I use for when I'm out with my dog. It's just the right size that holds lots of, of um, training kibble. Um, and it has a magnetic flap to it so that you can reach in there without a snap, without a, you know, a Velcro. Of course, the dog, dog hears the Velcro and the attention goes out the window. So um, I, I, it also has a zipper compartment above it that you can add some other things. You want to add a gentle leader, or your, your own keys, uh, whatnot. But this is my absolutely fa- favorite one. And it, it is leather. Um, it, uh, I, I just, uh, I love this. I can't, can't say enough about it. It is $20. I sell a lot of them. I keep a lot of them in stock because they're one of my favorite things. The way I got into this business, um, lights, I wanted to light up is about safety. Um, and, and this applies to cane users as well as dog handlers. Um, we need to be seen out there. The gentleman, uh, before, uh, that talked about the safety, um, in in uh, crossing uh, major streets and um, stepping out for Ubers, um, it's 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 huge to be seen. One of the options to doing that is using lights. We are um, a distributor now for Roughware, and they do an, an incredible uh, beacon light that is accessible. It is it was actually made for blind people to be able to access completely. It tells you when it's on or off. It tells you if the battery is running low. It tells you, uh, you know, how far your charge is. It will also make a little sound every half hour or hour. I can't remember what. In case you forget to turn it off, you'll hear that little sound. Um, those fit not only on a harness handle, but they fit very nicely on a cane handle. So for those of you out uh, making yourself a parent for an Uber, um, it's very helpful, and, and we do sell them for that. For those of my folks out there who are low vision, we have another model that actually is a lot of fun. Um, it uh, will attach to, it's it's a little bit different. Um, it will attach via a clip or um, it not, it does not have the rubber casing as, as the other one does, but it, it's very attachable. I attach it to my dog's, um, it has a little uh, pouch, fits very nicely uh, onto that. It's very cool. Um, three different light colors, um, and each of those colors will either be solid, it'll be blinking, it'll be fast blinking, or they've got a mode on it that it will blink bright, and then it will fade out. Blink bright, fade out. You can set it to go in either uh, green, red, or blue. It's a lot of fun, so if you have a little bit of vision and want to play with it. Um, these are especially nice, uh, folks. If you're in a if you're in a restaurant, um, it, it, I don't stuff my dog all the way under the table because she's a bit of a scavenger. So I kind of want her turned around the other way so that she's not, you know, uh, totally under the table. However, puts her in danger being stepped on unless they know she's down there. If you got a light on them, the folks notice. Oh, there's a dog down there. Great, she doesn't get stepped on. It's, it's really good. Um, I have packages now of um, a really nice resting pad. Um, it's a nice size. It's uh, 28 by 40, but it rolls up into a very small, tight, um, uh, kind of a, like a like a, uh, a bedroll. 
like a sleeping bag. It rolls up very, very little and tight. Um, it comes with a little drawstring uh, bag, and it fits so nice and easily into a backpack and does not take up space. It's very light to carry. Um, you can use it, and it's machine washable, which is just wonderful. I throw it in the wash every now and again, and uh, it's, it's brand new. It's great. Also, have the Roughware version that is... Um, uh, more substantial. It's more of a pad. It does uh, fold up. Those are a higher end item. They are forty dollars as opposed to the um, uh, the one that I have. Uh, the one I was describing earlier that I have that is twenty five dollars. Um, so you can take your pick on that. But you want your you want your dog to be comfortable when they're traveling or when they're waiting for you. Um, uh, toys. I'm just going to toss this in. While I do have a number of grooming things, uh, three-in-one grooming tools, four-in-one grooming tools, five-in-one grooming tools that have all kinds of different uh, possibilities on them for the coat, the different coats the dogs have, or the different parts of their body that have different kinds of coats. Those are, those are just wonderful to have, different kinds of slickers and um, all kinds of different things. They've really gotten into the... Um, the grooming. We have the poop bag holders. Ought to be they ought to be standard issue for every guide dog um, handler and also for pet dogs. Um, these things will attach to a harness or a leash. You will not have to carry the bag. The dog will carry their own bag. Get a you get a, a finished bag. Yeah, you shove that knot up through the uh, opening that is set to hold it, and the dog will carry their own until you get somewhere where you can dispose of it. And uh, you know, my native, I think everybody in this whole community has dogs, and they're all out there walking their dogs. And uh, you know, this I, I try and keep still these items high profile so the neighbors uh, get an idea that hey, this exists. I don't have to carry the poop bag. And oh, by the way, pick up the poop to begin with. Um, I had three dogs at one point. My my guide, number one, number two, and number three, who was the working one, we'd go out for walks together where uh, the active one was the guide and the other two healed. And, of course, you take three dogs out, and, of course, you're going to come back with three piles. And uh, just try meeting up with a neighbor when you got three uh Three piles of poop in your hands. It's awesome. And this thing will hold three things of poop. So I, I love them. They ought to be standard issue from the guide dog schools. I think I should probably uh, put those you should out. Pick it. You should go picketing. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. Um, and, and they're simple. They're just little things. Uh, the, the fur lifters, uh, they're wonderful. They're just, they're silicone. They pick up fur. It's just amazing. You can use them on carpeting. Um, you can use them in cars. I, I like to carry them when I'm uh, being driven somewhere, even in the Uber, I'll reach down it. You just use it like a, like you're brushing your dog. That fur just comes up. It takes you, it takes you 15 seconds to do it. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a courtesy to whoever's driving you. Um, it, they're, they're just really simple things, 11 bucks. They're just very easy to have and use. They'll work on your furniture. Um, I do have a version of fur lifters that is for clothing. It has uh, bristles of silicone, longer bristles, uh, about an inch, inch and a half. And uh, it gets into the folds of the clothing. 
and uh, they do a great job. If you're going in for an interview or presentation of some kind, and you've got, of course, dogs fur. Anybody who has a dog has fur. Um, wonderful. We should probably give them contact info, I think, because we're about four or five over on toys. But we've okay, got to sure. talk about toys. got to talk about it's, toys. It, well, the toys are very customized. Uh, Mary did mention this. I've got a lot of different kinds. Not the variety. It's not like walking into Betco. But um, I try and work with each each of my customers, the kind of dog they have, the size of dog they have, the way the dog likes to play, the way you like to play. Um, the dog's the boredom level. Um, we go through a whole series of questions and I work with the um, handler or the pet owner to find the right toy that is going to satisfy them. And we do a pretty darn good job working the the other person in me as a team to identify what they want. So very personalized. Contact me by phone. I'll just give my information right now. Pass it back to Barry. I've got, uh, let's see, I can be reached by phone directly. My cell is 781-286-1696. Uh, email is simple. It is guide light dogs, all one word at gmail.com and again my name is Kay Ann and uh, I'll look forward to hearing from you also I get a lot of calls that were, are for Barry it confuses people at times but that's okay we're the same we're, we're together at the same place Wait, so. we're, together. We're, only about, we're only about 30 feet apart at most times so we do it. <laughs> or less our, sometimes I'm right web, next <laughs> our website is www.guidelightsandgadgets.us.com it's .us. We have descriptions of all of our products. You can most reach me, most of them, not all, but you can reach me either by the phone number, which is 617-969-7500. It's my old law office number in Boston, so it's pretty easy. 617-969-7500. And it's B. Scheuer, hard to spell, S-C-H-E-U-R. It was actually spelled wrong in the program. That's why I'm sort of emphasizing. It's S-C-H-E-U-R, not with an E-R on it at the end. It's B. Scheuer dot gadgets and tech, T-E-C-H spelled out at gmail.com. B. Scheuer at gadgets and tech. Uh, tech at gmail.com we started we did about effects for four minutes i think we started a bit late and thanks for the opportunity everybody and we looked yes. forward to hearing from you. we really do please call if we can help you we are always excited to hear from you and hopefully help you find the stuff that you want thanks so much you've got a little bit of time if anybody has questions We answered them all. <laughs> They're all asleep. That's okay. So are we. <laughs> no, we are not. <laughs> I'm not seeing any raised hands right now. Just okay. let Thank you know. You. You're welcome. Sorry about misspelling your name. I thought I took it off of the website, but maybe oh, not. That's even worse. If you did, we're in trouble. Oh, <laughs> yeah. We better go back and check it. We better look. That's okay. Thanks, Ann. Okay. Well, thank, thank you, you very, so much, very much. Everyone. That was a lot of information quickly and i did take some notes so thank you so much i know you'll be hearing from some of us i hope so we enjoy it so much we when it stops being fun we're gonna quit doing it i'm sure you are yeah <laughs> thanks everybody bye thank you all righty um we don't have a door prize now right 
Oh, we do. If, we could do one if you want us to do one. Absolutely. Both oh, absolutely. Um, tell you what. Um, I think, you know what, Kay? Should we just do one door prize? I know what we could do. Well, I'll do one. You it, want to do one? It, right, yeah, how about two, sure. door, two quick door prizes? Can you, two quick door you know, prizes. Want to pick yeah. numbers? What, what are you going to What do you You got it. You got to We could do gift certificate. We get a twenty-five dollar gift certificate. One for dogs, one for okay. gadgets. Okay. You want to do that? Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. Why do you want to choose a number? Two numbers. Two. The gadget yeah. number and the dog number. How about that? Okay. All right. The dog number. Alexa, generate a random number between one and forty-two. Here's a number between one and forty-two. It's thirty-six. Thirty-six. 36 is Henry Staub. Oh, Henry, you, you know people with dogs, right? Right. Okay, Henry. Maybe, maybe Henry's a little vision guy who doesn't use a guide dog. Maybe we ought to give him the, the person prize well, you okay. for the dog. We're going to switch that around. That's fine. So Harry will contact me. We and you guys will put the info out um after the program so that people can get in touch with us. Yeah, okay. Okay, okay, so now we got for the human person. Uh, <laughs> we gave Henry the the one for the human person, so now we're going for the dog person, right? This time you can draw my name if you want to. All right, yeah. now let's uh, generate a uh, number between one and forty-two. Here's a number between 1 and 42. It's 11. Oh, let's see. 11. 11. Oh, that's my wife. Fancy chap. You have a dog? We have a dog. All right. Yes. All right. Well, we'll talk. And Thank we will talk. Much. We'll find something for you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Glad to have you. Thank you very much. Bye, bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye for now. Bye. Okay. Um, the next thing we have, and I hope it works as well as the last one did, we have a video from uh, the Kansas State School for the Blind. It was their White Cane Safety Day presentation. And Michael, you're going to have to help me because I don't remember all the people, but I do know that Sheila Styron is one of the presenters on it. And some of you may know her from her work with the ACB Transportation Committee, and she lives in Kansas City, Missouri. We know her because she's a guide dog user. She's a singer also, and... She presents, and I don't remember, I didn't listen to this video, so I don't know who the other presenters are. Do you know, Michael? Well, I didn't know I was making this introduction, so I didn't pull their names off of the okay, video. Okay, that's, uh, that's fine. One that's of them fine. is Kelly from Hutchinson, who yeah. is a uh, legally blind masseuse and who used to work for a Center for Independent Living uh, called Prairie Independent Living in uh, Hutchinson. And in that program, she was supervised by a totally blind friend who uh, is a, certainly a friend of KABBI's, and that was uh, Christine Owens. Uh, the other one, I don't remember his name, but he is the blind uh, debate and forensics coach 
And uh, I think he coaches some other things as well at uh, Kansas State School for the Blind. White Cane Day Panel 2021. A screenshot of the panel and participants on Zoom. Presented by the Kansas State School for the Blind. A logo with a flying blue eagle at the center of a sunflower. Welcome to our White Cane Day Awareness Panel with Kansas State School for the Blind. It's fun to see people from all across the state. I see several classrooms from KSSB. I see a friend from Mays. I see friends from Garden City. I'm looking to see. We have 29 devices joining our meeting at this moment, and I know there are multiple people on many of those devices. So I think we had about 90 people registered to join us today so that we can celebrate October 1st and the beginning of White Cane Awareness Month, Blindness Awareness Month. There are lots of terms that are used. And of course, October 15th is the official date that somebody picked. I guess I don't even know for sure who picked the date of October 15th specifically, but we wanted to get together at the beginning of the month so that we can spend the whole month joining together. So you may be wearing your White Cane Day t-shirt that you um, received in previous years or that you were able to get a new one this year. So I encourage you to keep wearing that all month. Um, and we're just going to spend some time today chatting with some maybe new friends and maybe some that you're familiar with. If you don't know me, my name is Anna Sear. I'm a field services specialist with the Kansas State School for the Blind. I live in Bueller, Kansas, which is in the central part of the state and serve students here in central and north central Kansas. Um, and we have several friends with us today who are going to talk with us. So we have three guests with us this morning who are adults, who have some involvement in being per persons who use white canes or certainly in being persons who live the life as a person who's visually impaired, who have agreed to join us this morning and just share a little bit about life. So many of you sent in questions that you had for these participants. And so we're just going to have a conversation among us. If you listen to podcasts at all, and maybe you even listen to the KSSB podcast, you've probably heard some discussions kind of like this. And that's kind of how I hope to tailor this discussion this morning is just five friends sitting around a microphone through Zoom um, talking about life as a person with a visual impairment and how we navigate that and what we do. So I'd like to introduce our guests to you this morning. Our first guest is Kelly Miller. Kelly's the independent owner and operator of Massage by Kelly in Hutchinson, Kansas. She's the current chair of the board of directors of Prairie Independent Living Resource Center, which we more likely like to call Pillar around here because that's a little shorter. And she's the creator of Blind Craft Crochet, a side business that keeps her hands busy while she eagerly awaits the call that her first dog guide placement is ready for training. In her spare time, Kelly enjoys spending time outdoors and attending live music events. Kelly, would you like to say hi to everybody this morning? Hi, I'm really excited to be here. I think this is gonna be a lot of fun. Awesome, thanks for coming, Kelly. Our next panelist is Christian Pewitt. Christian is a teacher of students with visual impairments and community, community support and accessibility specialist at the Kansas State School for the Blind. I'm learning we like really long titles at the school. We need to kind of shrink those up maybe, I don't know. 
He's also the coach of KSSB's speech and debate program. When he's not working, Christian's very involved with the Kansas City, Kansas Chamber of Commerce's Young Professionals Organization. Christian loves water sports, especially at Table Rock Lake in Missouri and the Gulf Coast beaches in Texas, Mississippi, and Alabama. And he's a fan of finding good food. And of course, that would include local Kansas City barbecue. So Christian, would you like to say good morning today? Hi, everyone. Good morning. Thanks for being here, Christian. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for coming. And finally, Sheila Styron works as a blindness and low vision specialist for the whole person, a center for independent living in Kansas City, Missouri. Sheila was the first person who was blind to have become certified as an ADA coordinator and trainer. Sheila is a strong advocate for eliminating barriers, barriers for people living with disabilities. She promotes public transportation and worked with the Department of Justice on its re revised division. Wow, revised definition, let's try that, of service animals. Formerly a professional musician, Sheila enjoys playing the ukulele, practicing yoga and cross-country skiing, as well as pursuing adventures like swimming with dolphins and skydiving. So good morning, Sheila. Hi, everybody. I am here with my white cane hanging on the back of my office door and my guide dog at my feet. All right. You are well prepared. You've got all the tools today. I, can I love it. Go either way. Right. Good. Okay, well, that just kind of launches us into what we want to talk about. We have this conversation, and I'm motivated to have this conversation for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's White Cane Awareness Month, and we celebrate White Cane Awareness Day on October 15th, and it's a great way to talk about that, to advocate, to interact with one another, and of course, inform the community about white canes and why they exist and why we use them. But I also love to take this as a time to just have interaction with adults because I spend a lot of my time with students who are visually impaired, which is awesome. And I love my students, but I want them to realize that they're going to grow up to be adults who are visually impaired. And what does that look like? And do you ever get to meet an adult who's visually impaired? And what is life like for you? So that's something I really hope that maybe you will get out of today's conversation along that. But since it is White Cane Awareness Panel, we're gonna start with all things canes. And we're just gonna let each person give us a little brief bit of information about their interaction with white canes. Some of the questions that came in around canes had to do, do you have a working cane and a dress cane? I thought that was a really fun question to think about. Um, or maybe what's the funniest thing that's happened to you while you've used your cane? And Shirley from Kansas City specifically wanted to know, why do you use the cane that you use? So Mr. Christian, we're gonna start with you this morning. Tell us about all things canes. What do you think about it? There we go. I'm having trouble with my tech here. I have used a cane for many years since second grade. Miss Judy Ember, who we all, some of us here in Kansas know and love, introduced canes to me. Um, I do not have a special cane for work and a special cane for like just around the town. I do have an old one that's a spare for lake activities that I don't care if it gets lost. And it has a flat metal tip on it that I find is easier to use for off-roading kind of experiences. And my cane I use pretty regularly daily has one of the ball rolling tips. Working at the School for the Blind, I'm lucky that I can go down to our O&M office and um, get help with my cane pretty regularly. So that has helped 
me transition back into using a cane after I used a dog guide yellow lab for many years. Okay, very good. I love that you tossed in there about tips. That was a question that didn't come up, but that could be a whole conversation for a whole nother day, right? About yes, it could. Absolutely. So Sheila, what do you have to add to that? Well, I am primarily a guide dog user, but I would not be without a cane. I carry with me constantly a teeny tiny little ID cane that's about waist high that I can fold up and stick, you know, in a, in a waist pack when I'm running or um, it's always in my purse in case something were to happen to my guide dog or there's something in the environment that I want to explore and I don't want to ask the guide dog to, to take me through if it's, if it's not appropriate. And I have a regular good Sheila length cane hanging on the back of my office door. And when I'm at work, I don't like order my guide dog to take me to the restroom or take me over to the copy, copy, copy machine or any of those little things. Just like at home, I, you know, of course, walk around with nothing. The office is large enough. And with people to run into, you won't see me walk, you know, outside my office without my uh, cane in my hand. And then when I go do sporting events, like I, I'm real big on cross-country skiing, um, you know, you can't take the dogs out on the trail. So very often there might be like a half mile between my hotel room and through a big, huge hotel and across a parking lot to a bus that I'm going to get on to go out skiing for the day. So I, of course, always have a cane for um, outdoor events where maybe my guide dog can't do his job. So it's, it's like a, a big tool there in my mobility toolbox, my white cane. Very good. And I noticed that you mentioned your she good Sheila length cane. So I want to know what is your preferred Sheila length cane? Oh, you would ask me that. I, um, I am not a cane expert, <laughs> um, but I, I know that the waist length one I can get by with if I have to. And sure. the other one is, oh, probably up to my chin or so. I am not, you know, a super particular and my cane lasts me a long time because it doesn't get the hardcore use sure. that Christians probably does. But I like a long one. I like a lightweight one. I like one that slides easily on the ground. Um, I, I like to walk fast and I feel safer. Um, oh my God, I'm not going to get the technical word right, but uh, is sliding it, swishing it from side to side, the arcing technique, rather than just tapping it, because I can swish faster than I can yeah. pick it up and tap. I was in the 5K run the other day, um, and I was excited. I don't know if you O&M people would approve, but there were a couple of people running in that race with white canes, and I got a real kick out of that. <laughs> Awesome. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad you were able to join that. So, all right, Kelly, you get to follow up now. Tell us about your experience with canes and what you love, or maybe even a funny story. Well, compared to these other two guys, I am a new cane user. Um, I was very resistant to using a cane for 38 years. I guess that ages me here. Uh, I've been a cane user for a little over two years. And I was really resistant because I just didn't think that I needed it. Um, my vision loss has progressed uh, over the last 41 years. And I just never thought that I would 
benefit from it until all of a sudden it was like, I can't see where I'm going anymore. So um, I really enjoy my cane. It gives me a lot of confidence. I don't, uh, I used to panic just going into a big concert event, just having to walk downstairs, even being able to hang on to my husband. And uh, my favorite cane story is walking into a Celine Dion concert at the Sprint Center in Kansas City and going down all those stairs and letting go of my husband and just having the confidence to make it down those stairs with my cane. Um, and it just made me feel great. Also, it was that was my first experience using my cane in public, um, kind of independently after my instruction. And I loved the fact that when we went to leave and it was a big crowd of people, it was just like a parting of the seas. <laughs> so you see somebody with a cane and they're like, oh, I'm gonna move. Uh, my cane's name is Celine, by the way, after that concert that we went to. Um, I use an Ambutec, I believe it's a graphite cane. It's pretty lightweight. Um, I use a roller, a marshmallow, marshmallow roller tip. And another funny thing about my cane, people always ask me about the color. Well, why are parts of it pink? What does that mean? And I simply say it's because I like pink. <laughs> so um, that's about it for me on a cane. I'm a new user and I'm loving it. Awesome, thank you. And all of this time always brings up more questions and I can amass, imagine most of you are out there just thinking, but why, but why, but why, but what's this? So talk amongst yourselves if you're with a group, Christian's holding up his cane for us. Christian, you wanna tell us something about it there? You're muted, I think, Christian, so. I see your folding cane, it's got the red and black. There we go. There we go. Yeah, I just wanted to hold it up since we're talking about everything canes. And I thought, oh, oh, it's by my feet. Yeah, where it's absolutely. supposed to be. So there we go. Very good. Okay. So that kicks us off. That's why we were here initially, but there's so much more. And we've already heard in relation to all of you that dog guides are a part of your story one way or another. So we're going to jump to Sheila to tell us a little bit about dog guides because she is, I think, the most experienced dog guide user of our group. Um, and a couple questions we had related to that. Kinnick from Mays specifically wanted to know what it was like to switch from a cane to a dog guide. So if you've had that experience and can speak to it, that would be interesting to hear. And then of course, what things should students consider before they apply for a dog guide? So Sheila, we'll let you get started there. Okay. Um, I did not switch from a cane to a dog guide. I started with a guide dog. It was um, 50 years ago this fall and Really, they just asked me if I could walk in a straight line. I was, like Kelly, resistant to using a cane growing up. If I had been introduced to a cane when I was little, I probably would have done it. But when somebody tried to put a cane in my hands when I was 11 or 12 and very worried about being cool and, and you know, in and everything, I ran away and climbed a tree. <laughs> I just ran around um, running into things and being a brave teenager with no mobility device. I went away to guide dog school and it felt like flying you know, to get that harness in my hand. And I uh, went to college at UCLA, which is a huge campus and walked on Sunset Boulevard to, to go to my classes. And, and I just, I just, you know, feel um, 
I'm a competent pain user and a brave traveler, but I just feel like I can go anywhere and anything with my guide dog. My guide dog can see and I can't. And if I point across a lobby of a hotel, um, you know, my guide dog will take me to where I hear the people at the desk and just, you know, whiz around the chairs and the ashtrays and stop at the stairs on the way. And I guess in some ways it's a lot of work to have a guide dog because you have to feed it and keep its training up and, and um, always be responsible for it. But my dogs do so much for me that I don't mind not being able to put them away in the corner um, as I do my cane. So for me, that hybrid lifestyle of having a cane when I need it is a wonderful thing, but the dog is like my mobility sports car. And, and I've, you know, I've, I've been president of Guide Dog Users Incorporated. I worked with the Department of Justice on the definition for service animals. And now I'm fighting with the Department of Transportation about the odious forms they are making us fill out to travel with our guide dog because of the damage that has been done by people um, and pets and a lot of emotional support animals misbehaving, uh, kind of making our way uh, harder in the world as people who work with guide dogs. So I, you know, my dog is Paxton. He's a very fluffy, sweet uh, little yellow lab. And he's my sixth guide dog. And I've had five girls and one guy. And all of my guide dogs have come from Guide Dogs for the Blind in California. And um, it, it just works really well for me um, to be partnered with one. But you need to know your mobility uh, before you get a guide dog. It's very important. Um, I know that Guide Dogs for the Blind will ask three questions on their, uh, their application. Tell us three routes you can do independently. And they'll want to know that you have had good mobility training and that you know how to use a white cane and uh, get yourself out of trouble when you're traveling with that cane. Uh, you don't just get a dog and say, let's go to church or let's go to the library. You have to give that dog very clear instructions and know where you're going. And yeah, GPS apps are great. And I'm sure you know many of them probably use those with your white cane. Um, and the dog just gets me there safely, stops at curbs, you know, takes me around poles. I don't run into people on the sidewalk. Um, it's, you know, he is the means of me getting there safely, but I still have to be the brains of how we travel, just like everyone does with a white cane. And no reputable guide dog school will issue you a guide dog until you have all those white cane skills down, you know, really well. Thank you, Sheila. That was a great way to say that because as you started talking, I could just see all the comms in the room cringing with, oh my gosh, she didn't use a cane before she got a dog. I know, but right? I'm- So, and that's a unique story. It's a unique fine, story. You said that very well <laughs> at the end of exactly what really needs to be considered and how that needs to be covered. And I love that you used that you have to be the brains. Because that's right. You have worked with me will be- hopefully be able to say that the most important mobility tool that we use is our brain, right? Regardless of dog or cane or GPS or anything else. So you hit that exactly where we wanted to hear it. 
Thank you very much. So Christian, you've had lots of experience with dog guides as well. Yes. How would you, what would you like to add? I agree with everything Sheila has stated. I am definitely not as experienced um, as Sheila. I have had one dog guide, Broadway, who some know, that is now a retired spoiled yellow lab that still lives with me. Um, it is a very different way of traveling because you're not hitting every object as you travel like you are with the cane. And you know you hit the trash can and then you know to go around it and you know it's there. The dog is just going to take you around it with you not even thinking about it, even though you have the brain skills to know where you're going and take all the turns. But it's just very different. And the cane is definitely an important tool to start with, but I agree. I love working with a dog and the dog taking some of that guesswork out of your travel because they're finding the curb for you of course they can get distracted and totally off your line of travel because they are still dogs if they see another dog or a person inappropriately interacts with them so I think at some point I will choose to get another dog I am just not ready yet and I've enjoyed brushing up my cane skills and beating my cane up a little bit to know that I have those skills in my pocket for if I choose not to use a dog that day. Okay, very nice. I like hearing that there are pros and cons. There are, because not as Sheila said- that Everybody should have one. Yeah, as Sheila said, you do have to feed it and water it and find a spot to relieve it. There's a lot that goes yeah. into planning your day to working with a dog that people probably don't think about. And really a very small percentage of the population, if it's all right, if we jump in again, yeah, have sure. guide dogs. Yes. And there are some good reasons and not good reasons about that, but um, you, and some people are really better at using a guide dog, just like some people are better at using a cane than others. You can work and work on your skills and we're, we all have different talents. And, you know, and, and I, I will say that, you know, I, I took to a guide dog, like a, a fish to water. And there are some people who will, um, you know, want a guide dog who sadly, it won't be um, a good idea for them. They, they may be well matched with a dog, they may get a, a bad match, or they may just get a dog and, and it, it doesn't work for them. And they, they may have to, um, you know, rescind that decision and, and go back to the drawing board. So it isn't for everybody. But I, I know people who have, you know, made that switch even later in life and said, why did I wait so long? So it's something, yeah. and, and there are schools, a couple of the schools, Leader Dogs for the Blind in Rochester and Guide Dogs for the Blind in um, San Francisco, both offer opportunities to, um, uh, to experience a dog before getting one or to brush up on your Correct. mobility training in a, in a live-in situation, like a week-long course where you really work on things. And then the school will help evaluate you at that time. And there are some people who want dogs who don't have strong enough O&M skills. And these programs are also an opportunity for them to really take a crash course and interact with the school personnel to, um, figure out if a dog may or may not be a good fit for you. So there's kind of a way to get your feet wet and not really quite have to commit to getting a dog, you know, 
Okay. At that point. Very good. Yeah. This so is much Christian. Good information. I, I'd like to add to that, that those crash, I call it a crash course, but it is definitely a good way to see if you like it. I went to leader dogs. A lot of students have participated in that. And I also wanted the audience to know that when we're referring to a match, after you do all the boring paperwork kind of stuff, you usually send in a video. A lot of times your certified O&M specialist is in on that process of you traveling so they can see how fast you're traveling, what kind of an intersection you're crossing, all those kind of skills. And they use that information to match you with the right dog. And sometimes that's, you know, a good match with that dog because you have the same temperament, the same walking speed. And there are times that that isn't a good match, but that's kind of the process. And once the guide dog, dog guide, excuse me, is issued to you, then you do either a two week or month long training to learn how to use that tool of a dog while the dog is already trained. I just wanted to clarify that for those who don't know. That's great information. Cause I think that's a question we often get if I'm out with a student, well, when are they going to get a dog? Well, it's not just a guaranteed automatic. Everybody's going to get a dog. There's definitely a process there. So it's really nice to hear. And the waiting lists are quite long these days. Yes. You have plenty of time. Lots of things are long these days. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Kelly, I don't want to cut you off on that subject, but I'm wondering if we can jump into the next one. And if you have something you want to add about that, it might even connect in the next topic. Okay. So, because we could talk dog guides all day, right? But we really want to make this a survey and hit lots of different things and get a real feel for life. Um, So we're going to start with Kelly in the next area, surrounding career. And we had some specific questions come in for Kelly about her career and how she chose it and why she chose it and how she manages it to work and all of those things. So we're just going to give each of you just a couple minutes to talk about why you chose your career, what things about it are important to you, why you just all of those different pieces. I'm going to stop asking. I'm going to let Kelly answer. (laughs) So first off on the dog guide subject, I've been waiting for 22 months now for my furry co-captain and companion. So uh, it's been a long wait. It's going to be well worth it. Um, I, my application was approved just right before everything started to lock down in 2020. So I know they're having a hard time getting dogs trained with, you know, not being able to take them out in crowds of people and things like that. So I will be patient and wait for my very well-trained dog. <laughs> uh, as far as my career goes, I actually, um, my vision was good enough in my 20s that I went to radiology school and I did x-rays and CAT scans in a busy hospital for nine years. And all of the sudden that ended uh, with cataracts and some optic nerve damage. And I had to change course. Um, luckily, I figured out my plan B when I was 19 years old. And I went to massage school because I knew that it was going to come a time when I could not see to do the things that I necessarily set out to do. And it was a really great decision because I love what I do. I'm, I'm a helper. I want to help people. I require a lot of help myself who doesn't, Um, but I do love to help people. And with the business that I'm in, with the industry that I'm in, that is what we do. Um, I chose the school that I went to based on uh, my learning style. 
I do enjoy being around people and being in a classroom setting. But um, and about an hour away from me in Wichita, Kansas, there was a 70-year-old woman by the name of Mildred who was accredited by the American Massage Therapy Association to teach massage. And she had about 50 years experience doing so. And she did individual classes. So over uh, 10 months time, I did my 550 hours of hands-on training, um, anatomy and physiology, ethics, all of those things. Um, I feel like I benefited from that. Other choices would be, I think Newman University offers classes. Um, I think there's still the Oriental School of Massage. Um, there's great options if massage is the route that you wanna go. And, and yes, I mean, it's you. I have had to figure out a way in a lot of cases to accommodate my disability, um, but it's my business. I run it the way that I want to. And people don't even know sometimes <laughs> I have to tell them, hey, just so you know, I'm, I'm legally blind. I'm losing my eyesight. This is how much I can see. And the main reason I tell people is because if they see me out at the grocery store or something and wave, I'm not going to acknowledge them. And um, Anyway, disclosing that I feel is, is part of building the relationships that I have with my clients. Um, I don't know, Anna, what else do you want to know specifically? Well, the other questions that came in had to do with technology you use every day and where you live. And I happen to know in your case that where you live and where you work, you have a very specific reason for that. So you might want to talk just a bit about those so technology wise, iPhone, iPhone, iPhone. I use it to schedule clients. I use it to take payments. I use it to communicate with my clients. I use it uh, even to further my education in my field. Um, I work at home, which is fantastic. Not for everybody. I am kind of a homebody. Unless I don't feel like being at home, then I'm out. See ya. <laughs> But uh, I love working at home because it provides the independence to work when I want. I don't have to rely on somebody to give me a ride to wherever my work is. There is no, there is public transportation here in Hutchinson, Kansas, but it's not convenient um, and it's not very user friendly. The times are weird. Anyway, that's a whole nother subject. Um, but I, I live in a house on a street in the middle of town. I'm about five blocks from our pharmacy. I'm five blocks from a grocery store. I'm close to the college, which is a great place to go and walk. Um, I'm in a great location for my clients, which is very important, so. Okay, very good, thank you. So Sheila, then if we jump to you, we, you have lots of big titles in your, in your description as well, but one of those that jumped out was ADA coordinator. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that and then also follow up with where do you live in relationship with where do you work and how does that work out for you? Well, I was, I was a music major in college and worked as a musician. And then when I got married and moved here in middle age, um, my, my music career, I, I sort of just started gradually moving more and more into the advocacy field. And I don't, it would be interesting to know how much I would have done that if I weren't blind and my whole life wasn't about constantly having to advocate. So uh, I, as part of when I, when I 
moved here. I, I did talk my way into a job as public policy coordinator here at the whole person where I still work and have almost been for 12 years. And um, as just, I wanted to, um, I just found the ADA very interesting. And I learned that there was a program taught through, you know, the University of Missouri and partly sponsored by um, the ADA, local ADA center. And um, so I was able to take classes uh, by attending, um, this was before there were a ton of podcasts, but there's a lot of online courses to do what I did now, but I did most of mine by um, getting work to send me to the big expensive ADA conferences that used to be held annually in the before times. And, you know, then you take a test and you get certified. And I spent some energy looking for work because every entity that has over 50 employees is supposed to have somebody who makes things ADA compliant, but I have not ended up leaving where I am to do that. But um, that, that was how that came about, just trying to broaden my scope as an advocate and giving me some credibility. And where I live, I, I live in a house on a bus line along the trolley trail. And like Kelly, it's, it's very important for me to live near things that I need to do daily. And being near a bus that runs as well as any bus can run in Kansas City and our we're pretty pathetic in both Missouri and Kansas in terms of public transportation, nothing to brag about. Um, but I did the best I could, ended up paying for a home that is more than I should be paying for, but surely would be making up that money and taking Ubers. And I advise people a lot who who call the whole person where I work and ask, I'm a person with a disability, where should I live? And I really advise them that when you move, you should really think about your transportation. Think about, you know, what facilities are near you because I also then six or seven minute, months later get calls from people who have ignored my sage advice and live in places where they're just waiting for paratransit. I haven't taken a, a real paratransit ride in seven or eight years, I do not have the patience. I, I lose every ounce of maturity and patience I've developed through my lifetime. I cannot do it. I cannot wait for somebody who makes me wait an hour or two hours. So if I can't walk or I can't take a bus or I can't afford the Uber or get a ride with somebody who cares about me, I um, and I have a blind husband, so I don't get a ride from my husband. Um, I, I just won't do it. And, but that that's a big, huge, important streak in my independent nature. And not everyone feels that strongly, but that's me. Okay, very good. Thank you. I learned something new in there about the yeah. ADA. And I do want to make clear, if someone's not clear, we're saying ADA for American Disabilities Act. Um, and that's making sure that wherever we go in public is accessible to anyone with a disability. And so hearing that, that every place that has 50 plus employees is supposed to have someone overseeing that. I would be curious to talk to people who live in a, or work in a facility with 50 plus employees and find out if they know who their ADA coordinator is. And hardly anybody does, but there are no teeth in the law. Sure. And uh, Kansas City hasn't had one now for, oh, a good long while. <laughs> uh, they had, and that's kind of something that trying to remedy here. 
Okay, very good. Those are good things to hear and learn about. So Christian, I'm going to do the same with you that I did with Kelly on the last jump. Okay. Add in whatever you have about career and technology. The specific question that came for you related to career had to do with what's your favorite part about coaching forensics, which is one of your duties at KSSB. But then I know this public transportation piece that we're talking about is where we're headed and such a huge piece of being able to have a job is being able to get from your job and get what you need. So can you move us from what you do for a job and why and what you love about it into public transportation and how that impacts you? Okay. So as Anna um, stated up front, I am a new teacher of the visually impaired. I was trained through Missouri State University. Some may say go bears um, in Springfield. I elected to take all online classes for a master's degree. I use technology daily and that did not really worry me taking a whole online program, entirely online. So I may not be comfortable with that. I enjoyed having the work for the week, you know, class-wise and doing it on my time. I also hold a bachelor's degree from Mid-America Nazarene University near Olathe, Kansas um, in elementary education. So that was an interesting switch for me going from being trained as an elementary educator to working with our K-12 students as a TVI. So the technology, I have so many devices surrounding me, it's not even funny. I have a braille display connected to my computer all day long. I have a braille note touch. I have an iPhone in my pocket. I maybe am too techie, some would say. And I enjoy teaching technology classes at the Kansas School for the Blind because I get to explore many, many new devices and what works and what doesn't work with them. So forensics is another name for public speaking. I do enjoy coaching the school's team. It allows kids to grow in their skills speaking in public, speaking just in class, and even the reading and writing skills because they may write their own speech. Um, We haven't gotten to travel with all our North Central schools in a while due to the pandemic, but it's always a fun opportunity to take a group of kids to another school for the blind and make connections that way and really watch them be proud of what they learned, whether it's a four-minute speech or eight-minute speech or a speech that they come up with on the spot called impromptu. The hardest event, in my opinion, You get five minutes to come up with a speech off of three topics that are on index cards and no reading or writing is allowed in that event. It's just very fun to see kids grow in their abilities while also having fun. I think that's all I wanted to share about that. So I'm gonna attempt to move us into transportation. I live with my parents still in Overland Park, Kansas, a very big suburb about 30, 35 minutes from the school, I either rely on family members or primarily Uber and Lyft for transportation. The bus route it would take for that is not as convenient as Sheila's. It would be going all the way downtown, probably over an hour, and then transferring and coming back to Kansas City, Kansas. I have investigated it would just be a nightmare that I do not choose to do. If, you know, my mom is not able to bring me to work, I would gladly use rideshare, then deal with all that 
and waking up that early to deal with those many transfers. Could I do it? Yes. Because I have done bus routes and public transportation here near the school, but that's just something I don't choose to do daily. I really find that in Kansas City, Uber and Lyft are pretty similar in their availability. A lot of times I have both apps open and I'm price shopping to see which one is going to be cheaper for where I have to go. I do find that Lyft drivers sometimes are more helpful, like standing there and um, giving me verbal directions to a door of an unfamiliar business or walking with me when I'm not confident. So sometimes I feel that they're just more helpful and there are tracking features, not tracking, excuse me, sharing your location features. That's if someone you care about wants to see when you got picked up or when you got dropped off, you can do that. And they're easier to use on the Lyft platform than on the Uber platform, you know, for security and safety. Lyft does have a longer wait time. I believe it's five minutes from when they arrive to pick you up. So that may give you more time to find your driver than on the Uber platform. Anything okay, else you wanted really to know? Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, is there anything else you wanted to know about rideshare, Anna? I'm no, I think that's a great start to that conversation. And that's an interesting piece to hear because out here in central Kansas, yes, I think we do have some Uber drivers, not to the extent of what yeah. you have in Kansas City, of course. And so knowing that right, that wait time of how long they will wait from once they arrive until you get to the car, that's important to know. Yeah. That can be a big deal. Two minutes and five minutes is a significant difference in time. Well, and you also have to think about when are you going to disclose to the driver that you are someone with a visual impairment standing there with a cane or a dog guide. And there are a, multiple guide dog, guide dog denials around the country where they you know, refuse to take you or drive off because you have a dog guide. I have experienced that two or three times in my 10 years of using a dog guide before he retired. So just, you know, when you accept, they accept you as a writer, do you tell them right off the mat, I'm visually impaired, I have a dog guide, or I will have my white cane, or do you wait till they get there? Do you wait till they call you? You know, how do you want to do that? Because I'm not going to see their car, even if I know it's a red Chevy. Sure. And do you have and a preference on that? Um, I've done it both ways. Since our, if I'm on our campus, I usually tell them before they arrive because it likes to take them to the back of our campus on Washington street for whatever reason, no matter where I am requesting it from. So that, you know, where there's multiple buildings, it can get kind of tricky them finding you based off the GPS spot they're given. So okay. I kind of find sometimes it helps to just be upfront that hey, I'm visually impaired. I won't see you. I'm standing here with my cane. But each people have, every person has a personal preference for that. Absolutely. Good perspective to hear. So um, Sheila and Kelly, you both touched on public transportation a little bit. I do want to make a couple of notes of things that have been happening as we're talking. Sheila, I saw you lift your Braille display while Christian was talking about technology that you have a Braille note touch or something similar right there in your hands. I, I'm a big Braille person. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Very good to hear. Um, and we did have a question come in, Sheila. Somebody wants to know what tip do you have on your ID cane? 
I don't know. <laughs> fair answer. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I think it, 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 it feels kind of silky and plasticky and it, it's shaped like uh, kind of almost like the chapstick that comes up out of the tube. It, okay. This particular cane, I've had a roller one. I liked it. It broke. The last time I ordered a cane from Ambutech, I didn't quite know what I was ordering. And I ordered one that was too short and gave it away. And, the, and now this one I have is somebody I know who fixes canes gave it to me. It's super lightweight and it just has this... Um, silky tip that slides pretty easily. Okay. I don't know if that might be called a pencil tip. I'm not right. sure. Um, Without seeing it sounds like a pencil tip. So that's, but it's possible. not because it's, it just, it's working okay, but I don't know enough to have made, you know, an adult choice. Um, I, I hope I'm not an embarrassment on this call. No, this, that's okay. this is who I am. Um, it's okay to admit that we don't know. I and I will, I'll tell you, you, I don't like it when it makes noise. So I like it on the carpet, sure. but when I go like into the restroom, I kind of pick it up and I air swipe it an inch above the ground because I don't like the way it goes. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. We don't always want to be known where we're at. No. Sure. And one other correction I need to make. Michael Byington was listening carefully and let me know. I said 50 employees. It's 15 employees. There needs to be an identified ADA coordinator no. or representative. Is that correct? No, no. 50 for a, a large entities over. If you have over 15 he's talking about the size of the organization right. yeah and so if it's if it's um but no if you have 15 i don't think it's that i think it's yeah okay. i will we'll double check that, that and get that figured out but good just know that hardly anyone has one who's sure. supposed to yeah good to know okay well we are at the point we need to kind of start thinking about wrapping up so we want to know advice that you each might have, both for O&M instructors, because many of our people joining us and listening today are teaching O&M on the daily. And so we want to know from you as adults, what do you think is important for us to teach? Um, but then also for our student listeners, what piece of advice do you have or would you give? And so let's, Kelly, we haven't heard from you for a while. So I'm going to jump things around. Let's hear from Kelly. What Additional things you have to say and what advice do you have both for instructors and students? So my advice for instructors, um, of course, I, I didn't have O&M instruction when I was school age. I waited until I was an adult, which is a mistake. Uh, if I had done it sooner, I would be way less direction or directionally challenged. Um, but I guess my advice for O&M instructors would be for all teachers in all school settings. Um, young people need to learn about the disability rights movement. Uh, what the people before us went through to get us the rights that we have now. And I think in, in teaching those things, uh, everyone can learn how to advocate for themselves and for our community, which is, I mean, we have to do it every day. It's just part of life. And I, I think that if I had learned those things when I was younger, and I, it's been a long time since I've been in school, so maybe they do teach it now, but I think that the more that we know of the progress that's been made, the, the better and better things can get for us as we go forward. Um, I hope that makes sense. And what was the other part of it? Oh, advice for students. Yes. Um, having my own business has been the most empowering thing for me. Just 
it's been amazing. And I just want people to realize if, if you want to do it, you can immerse yourself in, um, learning about finance, especially personal finance, because that can help you with both your own life and your business life. Um, depending on what industry you want to be in, spend time with people who own their own business. You know, if you want to do a massage, but you don't know, or if you want to do massage, but you don't know massage therapist, spend time with a cosmetologist, ask them how they run their business, ask for tips, um, talk to a, an accountant who's self-employed, find out, you know, what they would expect of someone to know about finances for their business. And most of all, if you're going to be if you're going to own your own business and run your own business, the most important asset that you're going to have is the relationships that you build. You can provide a great service or a great product, but if you can't interact with people, be friendly, be able to communicate, show empathy, um, if you can't build those relationships, you're, you're not going to do well. So that's my advice. Awesome. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, Sheila. We're going to, um, to have to go to lunch soon, so we'll have to yes, keep it somewhat brief. Very quick. Um, everybody has a different uh, personality and a different comfort zone. But my advice to both teachers and students um, is to toss low expectations out the window. I think a lot of people think they can't do as much as they can. And a lot of people who are the helpers, the teachers also have maybe lower expectations than they, than they need to. Uh, I had a girlfriend in college who went on to become an O&M instructor at San Francisco State. And she always told me, she goes, you know, living with me uh, as a roommate in college, you know, taught her to really, you know, aim high you know, shoot for the stars with her students. And she had a great career and, and, and I just wish everyone to, to please know that you are capable. You can go, you can do, and you don't have to sit around and wait for um, others to help you. Or even, you know, don't, if they have low expectations, don't fall for it. Oh, that's a nice phrase. I'm going to keep that one on my wall. They have, they have low expectations. Don't fall for it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay, Christian, you are now the advice giver. And I do have one question that just popped in that I would love for you to answer. Okay. Um, we have some people joining from a public library and they would love to know, is there a specific keyboard that they should have for their computers for people who are blind? So can you pop that answer in, in the midst of giving us some good advice for life? Boy, that is a tricky question because all our students are so individual. I really put an emphasis on the normal um, keyboard, computer keyboard that has the home row with ASDF, JKL, and semicolon, which is called the QWERTY keyboard, by the way. Most people don't know that. So there's your fact for the day. Having braille displays in available would be awesome. That can connect two devices. I have the Focus 40 in my hand that has been next to the computer this whole conversation. Um, so just any type of really just any easy software to access stuff. So I always think it's nice if stuff can libraries and places can be designed with universal access as much as possible, which does get tricky when you have people at differing levels. 
But what oh, I heard that, you say in the beginning was most of our students hopefully do learn to use a QWERTY keyboard. So if there's a QWERTY yes. keyboard available, that is the beginning. Yes. And then if it can have simple software like the non-visual desktop access screen reader, that will go a long way for students who need um, accessible computers. Great point. Perfect. Okay. So what um, advice do you have for O&M instructors and also for students? I would say that my advice is getting the tools in the students' hands as early as possible. I lost vision later in life, a great degree. I, you know, I had a cane in my hand in second grade, but I had to learn Braille later. I just think giving, getting a cane in kids' hands, getting them used to using it, and getting them started on Braille, if that's appropriate, is probably the best road to take a student down. So when they need to use it for college or later, they have those skills. And then I, I love Sheila's quote about advice for our students. And I'd also like to leave you with, don't be afraid to use your skills. There's nothing wrong with using a white cane. It's going to prove that I can. I can cross the street. I can, you know, find a door. It's your tool. It doesn't mean anything less about you. And just embrace the skills that you have that give you that even playing field with students who do not have a disability. Excellent advice. Thank you each very much, Christian, Sheila, and Kelly. It's been great to have you here today. Those of you who've been listening in, I hope this has been helpful. If you would like to turn your cameras back on, and I'm going to even risk it. I want to say if you want to unmute and we can all say bye together so we can get a little bit of a feel for who all was here today. Feel free to jump in. Again, Hello. I hope this was helpful and we'll see you all again soon. Everybody said thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> bye. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hold it down. Thank you. Wave, guys. Everybody wave. Wave, wave. <laughs> Yay, yeah. transition. Everyone's waving in the thing. <laughs> the logo for the Kansas State School for the Blind. Fade to black. Last, but by no means least, we have a real treat. We're going to hear from Wes Brimmer, who is a Kansas author. He's been a friend of ours for a long, long time. Um, he, his first book was Dust and Roses. It, it's on talking books. And uh, we, we read it and enjoyed it. And we're looking forward to reading his next book, which he's going to talk about. And um, I don't know, Wes, what, what inspired you to, to start writing? Well, that's hard to quest how to answer. I've been writing probably for years, but, you know, like most people, you write something and then, you know, it doesn't go anywhere. You don't finish it. And, you know, when your computer crashes, it just goes away and you start <laughs> yeah. over again. Um, so about 2012, um, Debbie and I were visiting friends up in Merriam County, and uh, we got to talking about, a county asylum that was up there that we'd go visit. 
So we did that. We drove by and, you know, it was a forbidding looking hulk of a house and it was just, you know, doors, windows were broken and door was open and it was abandoned basically. At least that's what we thought. So anyway, we went back and made up stories about the house and mainly horror stories. <laughs> and I got to thinking about the next day, what, what was it? I mean, well, we researched it and found out it was actually a poor farm, not just a county asylum. So a poor farm is essentially a, a place where um, poor people lived. You know, they were, um, they had nowhere else to go. It was sort of supposed to be so bad that nobody would possibly want to go there, you know, unless you were just completely desperate. So, it was basically our early version of a group home. Um, poor farms really started a lot of different things, rest homes, um, sort of a prototype of the assisted living centers that we got today. Um, anyway, I didn't know about this until we found out it was a poor farm. And that got me to thinking about what kind of people would live inside a poor farm. And then that led to, Oh, sketching characters and situations. And, and I thought there's got to be a story in there somewhere. So I just started digging, uh, writing stuff that was might work for a plot. So eventually I just kind of put it together. Um, so that was my first novel. I probably made every mistake in the world in writing a novel. I had to look up how to write. There's, you know, scats of books out there. Um, I think one of the ones I used was, uh, or the one I liked the best was the dummy's guide for writing novels. And I, I don't know if it's in talking book, but I'm sure if you Google or not Google, but looked up writing in, you know, the NLS library search that you might, might run across some writing, uh, books. Also, there's a lot of writing books in Kindle. So, you know, if you're, if you want to read in Kindle about writing, that's, you know, you could do that too. So anyway, wrote the book, um, took four years, put it out. Uh, originally, I put it out for self-publishing, you know, uh, published it on Kindle. And uh, then I got this wild hair about sending it to Wild Rose Press, which was a small press in New York State. So I sent that to them thinking, you know, nobody's, they're not going to buy it. First of all, it was already published, you know, self-published. So the word I got was, you know, they're not going to publish something that's already been put out, but they did. And uh, that entailed a total rewrite of the book. So what Talking Book has is the self-published version oh. out there. The rest of the world has, um, uh, the Wild Rose Press version, which is probably about 20,000 words shorter because I had to cut it down to oh, 100,000 words or less. So subplots got cut out, uh, just a whole mess of fine detail got cut out. So what you're hearing on the talking book is basically the, the uh, director's cut and what the rest of the world is getting is the commercial cut. So anyway, I got that out, decided, well, I can't just write one. I have to write another one. 
and uh, got to looking around for something to write about. One of the things that got my attention was a visit with Debbie's dad, who grew up around uh, Topeka, um, Silver Lake. And he told me about the story about when he was a child, he visited a friend's farm and the, his friend told him about, well, we got a German prisoner of war working for us. And this was during World War II. Um, so, he, you know, he, they went to see, I mean, they saw the guy. He was a big oh, strapping German, you know, very masculine and strong. And he was loading bags of potatoes. And come to find out, he didn't mind loading, unloading. He would do any sort of hard physical labor. But the one thing he would not do was dig for potatoes. He just absolutely would not. <laughs> you couldn't give him a shovel. I mean, he was willing to take any punishment if he, you know, do anything besides dig for potatoes. So I thought that is a heck of a story. I'm going to put that in a book somewhere. So I got the reading about prisoner of war camps uh, in America. By the way, those, just to give you a quick history note, there was like 500 prisoner of war camps in the United States. And the whole reason why we got into the whole uh, prisoner of war business is because Britain was fighting Germans way before we were, and they were taking in a lot of POWs from Africa, like in the Africa Corps, you know, General Rommel, Rommel and all that. So all their prisoner camps were being filled up and they were putting pressure on the United States as, hey, you got a big country, you need to, to set up some POW camps. So all over the country, including a little place in Concordia, Kansas, were set up uh, for POW camps. And I use Concordia as my model uh, for doing the story. Um, took another four years, uh, did a lot of rewrites, um, finally put it together, sent it to Wild Rose Press and about eight, that was like in the spring of 20 or 2019. And then in 2020, um, I got it finally published. So it's been out since May and gotten pretty good reviews. Um, so I'm kind of doing the marketing thing, uh, trying to sell the book. It's in uh, paperback, it's in uh, Kindle or any ebook that you want to get, like Barnes and Noble or whoever's out there, you know, that sells ebooks. I've got it in the uh, Kansas library, you know, talking book library, and they, they haven't got it recorded yet, but I think that's one of their to-dos. So I'm not really sure when that's going to come out. It could be, oh, later this year, or maybe as, as late as next year. So um, that's kind of the story of how I got this book going. I'm working on a new project. Um, trying to start a series uh, based on, well, my elevator is pitches this. If I don't know if anybody reads Jack Reacher, you know, Lee Childs. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So my, my pitch is this, if what would, 
what if a Jack Reacher type character was a World War One vet, had skills like boxing and engineering, you know, a tough guy? What would it be like if he was a tramp in the 1930s? So, and that just opens up a whole new world of, you know, possibilities and conflict. So that's sort of what I'm working on right now. Um, getting back to Stalag Sunflower, um, the, the, the story kind of is about a German uh, that gets captured in North Africa and eventually gets sent to uh, a fictional version of Concordia. Uh, I call it Camp Conrad. And he uh, gets put into the farmers or the uh, labor program because back then, uh, history-wise, a lot of the POWs worked for the nearby farmers doing things like, well, like planting potatoes or digging them up or shucking corn or um, painting the barn, just pretty much anything as long as they didn't uh, use power equipment. I think driving was frowned upon, but I think it happened. Um, so they were, it was pretty much hand labor. And um, at first, the rules was they couldn't fraternize with the families, fraternize with the farmers, wives and kids and whatnot. But of course, that the people that make the rules aren't around when the rules are being broken. So a lot of that happened. And um, in my book, my guy falls in love with the farmer's daughter. So that creates a lot of conflict for him. And uh, it basically, that's kind of the start of the book. And I don't want to get too much further into it. No, we don't want to know it. Uh, it's, I had a blast writing it. Let's put it that way. So um, I don't know if anybody, what, what else would you like to know about it? Christy Sykes from Louisville, Kentucky. I just wanted to say I'm honored to talk to you. I loved the book, and I don't want to step on any toes, but I thought the narrator was awful. It was so bad, I thought, <laughs> that I almost put it down. But because of the power and the pull of it, I just had to keep reading, and I was really glad that I did. I was wondering if you could put your book on Bookshare. Repeat that again. If you could put your book on Bookshare. Um, yeah, I, I could look into it. Um, I might have to have somebody help guide me through the process, but sure, I don't. Well, some of us could help you do that. Okay. Also, as long have as you ever. Break, as long I'm sorry, as go ahead. break my contract, which now this Bookshare's special format, right? Just for. It's, it's for people with print disabilities. It's, it's a daisy okay. format, I think, though, isn't it? Okay. Well, I think it's probably under the same rules as... The, America, <clears throat> the Marrakesh uh, copyright thing is where you don't have to get permission anymore. It's, it's for people, pay, they have a paid membership, or if you're, in the, if you're a student, like at Hadley or any school, since it's tied to the Department of Education, you can... Um, join for free in that case but otherwise it's a membership fee and then we can use our braille or large print or 
speaking devices like Victor Streams, Kindles, to, well, I don't know about Kindle, but to access uh, and our iPhones to access Bookshare. But my second question is, have you ever uh, collaborated with any would-be writers um, to help write their books? And would you be interested in anything like that? I've, the question has never come up. Um, usually, collaboration is, man, that's a whole other deal. Um, I belong to a writing group called Kansas Writers Association. And I like, like it a lot because it's sort of a social outlet. Writing can be such, you know, you're like a monk, you know, all by yourself writing this stuff, wondering if anybody will ever read it. Or, you know, you kind of operate in the dark from um, mm -hmm. whether your audience will even appreciate. You know, it's kind of like you write the book. And you're a little bit afraid of putting it out there because you don't want nobody to call your child ugly. <laughs> right. But anyway, collaboration is, that's an intriguing idea. Um, I wouldn't mind trying it with somebody if there's somebody that's out there. I've, if somebody wants, this is, okay, well, I can make a pitch here. If somebody wants to write and they really want to do something, um, course the one word answer is right you can't write a story in your head you have to put it you have to bleed on the paper so mm -hmm. the first thing you need to do is write um and i'd be glad to be a writing partner with somebody if, if they're just starting out um of course i'd have to set certain guidelines like do you want to hear right. the truth you want to hear the truth or do you want me to rub your back you know so Writing is that. a learning process. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I've had, I wrote, well, what's that word that's like a fish? Crappie? I did a lot of crappie writing. <laughs> <laughs> so, I've done a lot uh, of that, too, where I just yeah. never, I wrote books and uh, parts of books in Braille. I got in trouble at the School for the Blind in Kansas because I would use so much paper. And I was always writing <laughs> little stories and I actually won a little uh, alumni contest um, where a guy was uh, on the match game. And it was before the celebrity match game where Gene Rayburn was host. And the guest, uh, they said diamond blank. And one of the contestants said diamond dust. Well, I thought that was a neat little name. And I used to collect lids, fancy, schmancy little perfume lids and things. And they were little girls in my head. And they all had funny little personalities. So I had a diamond dust in there. And I wrote a book about diamond and a kid named Joe that she didn't like and got first place in the alumni contest in third grade. <laughs> so I've always had a yen to write a very well-written, very moving book but don't have the wherewithal or the knowledge of publishing to do all that myself. And I didn't know how to do some things about the family or different things without sounding, I don't know, strange when it comes from first person. So I just thought maybe I could collaborate with somebody and you were about the first person that I thought would be really neat to collaborate with. Oh, sure. We can, you know, uh, Anne could probably give you my contact information, or I can give okay. it. I'm I on Facebook. Okay. She can give us a website, too. It, well, I thank you very much. It was wonderful, wonderful reading your book, and I can't wait to read the next one. 
But, well, there's one other thing I wanted to say. Now I can't remember. But um, one thing that, that I would say is uh, it's kind of like a her, uh, Ernest Hemingway quote. Write drunk, edit sober. So when you write, when you write, you just you just go for it. You just write the most over-the-top thing you want. Because the only audience you have is yourself. So if you write something that pleases yourself, chances are you've wrote somebody that's going to please somebody else. So I would say start writing and, and uh, write something that's going to please yourself. And you have another hand, Michael Byington. You just need to unmute. There we go. Hello, my friend, Wes. Hey there. It's uh, all the time that we were playing beat ball together in our younger years. I never thought that I was uh, uh, associating with a would-be published and growing in popularity writer. This is a real honor to talk to you in this capacity. I am very anxious to read Starlock Sunflower because uh, my father was uh, during World War II, even though he had been low vision as a child and gone to the school for the blind, somehow the army took him anyway, and he was a prison guard in the POW camp at Leavenworth. That was his job. He was an MP prison guard. And so I heard a lot of stories of uh, prison camps during that time myself, and I'm anxious to read your take on the Concordia uh, camp, which I know absolutely nothing about. Uh, I have two questions for you. Uh, one of them is along the line of uh, Christy's question. And by the way, Christy, I did send you his uh, contact information. Uh, I mean, the contact information for this lecture. I don't know. Kathy broke into our service here earlier to say you didn't get it. And I don't know why, because I mailed it where you said to. But anyway, uh, didn't want you to think I just blew you off on that. Uh, so sorry you didn't get it. Uh, as far as, as uh, the uh, issue, though, of writing, my first question is, let me think how to put this. I read a lot of stories that people publish on the self-publishing websites. And your first book, Dust and Roses, was probably the most compelling thing I've read in the last five or ten years. You are a wonderful writer. You, uh, I don't know how a Legally Blind guy does so well with descriptions so accurately, but it's a very colorful, vivid book. And I just think it's, it's a wonderful book. But I read things that I think are just almost as good as uh, some of these published authors that I read, uh, yourself included. And uh, I accidentally muted myself again. There we go. You're, you're back. Okay, I'm back. I, I read these things on the, the vanity publishing sites on the internet. And it seems like the most, the most number of sites like that that I found are in two categories. One is science fiction. The other is erotica. I haven't found many in the uh, category of historical fictions. But I read these books on those two categories. And there, some of them are really, really good. 
And the big difference that I see in you as an up-and-coming writer and the people on those sites is that you somehow figured out how to make that transition from vanity self-publishing into being a serious writer that's actually being published and marketing your stuff. And you sort of begin to respond to that with Christy, but I would be curious as to what you would say helped you in that transition. And my second question relates to the fact that you have chosen an interesting genre to write in, and that was the genre of historical fiction. There's probably not as much competition there because I don't know many people who are writing good historical fiction. You just don't read it. And your research seems exemplary on the fiction that you write. And so I'd like to know a little bit about what went into your choice of historical fiction as a genre in which to develop your expertise. I've always liked science fiction. I grew up reading science fiction. I read a lot of golden age pulp science fiction. So, you know, everything from Isaac Asimov, Heinlein, Paul Anderson, you name it, I read it. Um, when it came to writing science fiction today, it's, it's so esoteric compared to what it was back in the golden age. And you just I agree with you there. It, it, I mean, to me, it's its own code. I can't hardly follow some of it. So I'd, I'd love to t- tackle it, but, and I even have an idea for a book in my mind, but I'm just not sure I'm, I would do it justice. How, how do you choose historical fiction, though? Okay, let's put it this way. Historical fiction is science fiction by a different name. In historical fiction, you build worlds. Um, of course, the world is one of history versus future, but you've got rules you have to follow. You've got limitations that the character has to deal with. You know, they don't have computers or internet or TV. Um, I deal in the 30s and 40s where the biggest thing, the radio was today's version of an iPhone. So um, given these limitations, um, you, uh, you have your character just operate in that world and uh, like I said, it's just world building. You do a lot of research. You find out inventions, what year they were invented, what was the popular thing, what was the favorite song. Uh, you, know, you just kind of immerse yourself in trivia. And, it, and trivia is hard because you read, you know, big picture history stories, you know, um, about politicians, what they did. That doesn't really help you with writing historical fictions because you need to know the the nuance you know how did people wash their clothes how did they you know what cars was popular you had to really get in the weeds to find out you know what was going on so that's kind of what i did was kind of dig into that and and in a way your research is just like science fiction you you dig in the nuance of things you come up with you know, what the faster than light drive, you know, what made it work and that kind of stuff. Um, so basically, I, 
I treated it as like science fiction only. It's a world that that we've kind of forgotten about. You know, there's a lot of epic historical fantasy out there, you know, that's based on certain historical things. And they they extrapolate from that. So when I write historical fiction, it's not it's not history, but it's a story of, that takes place in that his, you know historical environment, and uh, it really boils down to characters. You know how the characters operate, how they react to each other. You know within the setting. So it's the setting actually a good story. The setting as part of, is one of the characters. Like when you read Dune, you know when you were a kid, Dune was a setting, but Dune was also a character. So you got to turn your, your setting into a character. And uh, that's kind of what I tried to do when I wrote uh, Stalag Sunflower. Uh, now I don't remember the first part. Uh, oh, marketing. Yeah. About and, and making that transition from uh, being a vanity publisher that maybe put something on a website or does a limited printed publication oh, yeah. to actually yeah. becoming a published author. Well, you, you have to have patience and you have to have tenacity. You have to keep telling yourself, you know, you, you, you come into a roadblock in your book. You know, nothing seems to be working right. You're seeing plot holes. So you have to just kind of put one word in, fr in front of the other and just keep going. The nice thing about a first draft is nobody's going to see it but you. So even if the grammar's wrong, the spelling's wrong, there's, you know, you got red eyes or blue eyes in the first chapter and brown eyes in the ninth chapter, you know, you go back and you fix all that. But the whole key of writing that first draft is to get, get it done. If you, once you get the done, the, the story done, then you can go back and just start tweet, you know, tweeting it, you know, making it better, finding a better turn of phrase than what you had. Um, anyway, you get it polished up um, and you find people to kind of read it for you. Uh, those people are called beta readers where, you know, and you tell them, you say, read this book and tell me every word, every bad thing, the worst things you hated about the book. You know, let me know. Tell me everything. So that way you get an honest opinion and you can go back and you can fix those things. Another thing you can do is uh, join a writing group or join a critique group. Critique groups are really nice because you have a, uh, you know, three or four people that read each other's stuff and then you kind of critique you know, what can make it better, what sounds good, what doesn't sound good. Anyway, once you get the book done, and I think this is what you're asking for. Like I said, I originally published it, self-published. And then I just got this idea of sending it off to uh, a small press. I, I didn't even try the big ones like HarperCollins because you have to have an agent to get in on that. And about 90% of the markets out there, you almost need an agent. I just don't have, I'm not, I'm not prolific enough to, to have an agent. Uh, there's some people that in a writing group, she, I think one lady writes Amish, Amish stories and she's very successful at it. And she writes, 
she wrote about 40 of them and she wants to break out of Amish. She's tired of reading uh, or writing Amish stories, but her publisher, uh, Harlequin, says, no, you got to keep writing Har- uh, Amish stories. <laughs> but I guess my point is, you, you uh, I, I got involved with Wild Rose Press. I sent it in as a unsolicited manuscript because, because they allowed that. And about, oh, I don't know, six months later, they accepted it. And then uh, I got an editor and she basically would, she read the first draft and gave me criticisms about it. So I went and changed that. And we went through about six or seven rounds of editing. So it was a long, long process. And I wasn't her only client as far as, you know, being an author, she had other people. So each each time we communicated, it was at least a month apart. So, you know, I had to make good on everything, you know, make it as good as I can so I could, didn't have to go through so many steps. But as, as it turned out, I had to go through all the steps anyway. So anyway, I got published by, uh, by Wild Rose Press. Mainly, I was, I was totally surprised. I really expected them to turn down the book because it was already published. <laughs> so that gave me a lot, of, a big ego boost. And, uh, you know, after that, it just kind of, you know, I, and, 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 and it was like a bucket list thing. I told myself, okay, I wrote a book, got it published. I can move on now. But a friend of mine says, oh, no, you wrote one. You got to write another one. And so that's kind of where I got started with uh, Stalag Sunflower. I had to write another one. So that's that's what it turned out to be. Did you have to go through that many edits on the second book? Uh, yes, I did. Um, it was, it was. Uh, in fact, I kept every every draft that I that it went through, and, and uh, it was kind of funny when I changed one. You know, when you change one thing in the draft. It causes a ripple effect through the whole book. So when, when you change one scene, then it affects other scenes down the road. So mm-hmm. it was a lot of, basically, it was a lot of error, finding errors, a lot of catches. Um, you know, I had somebody that, uh, oh, what was it, that found a clue before I actually off, made the clue available So in the story. So you have to really get into the weeds and, and uh, make sure everything, you know, fits. So you think having an editor was helpful? I liked it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I would. Some editors are better than others, but yeah. yeah. But for, okay. For a self-published author though, editing is, that's expensive. Um, so my advice is for self-published people is we get, you can't depend on a professional editor, but you got friends who can read your book and, right. and uh, you got, you can join a writing group. Um, you can do things, you know, that would take the place of the editing and, uh, you know, and when you get enough of that information, it, you know, it starts to gel and you can kind of, right. 
put it together as you go along. I liked your first book really well. And now, would you explain to me? Kathy, you're hard to understand. You're not clear. What happened to you? Can she relay it? Kathy? We lost her. Yeah, she. Hey, try again, Kathy. Okay. Um, That's Wes, better. How did you say that we can get your book? It is it is it? Uh, you said on Kindle. Is it read? Uh, is it voice or is it just an ebook? How can I? How can, excuse me. <coughs> how can you get Pollock Sunflower? Is that the question? Yes, yes. All right. Yes. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Amazon as a Kindle book, or you can get it, you know, Barnes and Noble as an electronic book. Uh, you can actually read, you have to buy the book. It's $5.99 for an electronic. Uh -huh. um, you know, you just got to, you got to buy the book to read it, right? So, yeah. So anyway, you buy the book, okay? I mean, that's kind of what it's all about, sort of. Buy the book. Uh, if, if it's on Kindle, you can actually read it through Alexa. You don't even have to fiddle with the Kindle app or, you know, whatever. Uh, like I could kind of demonstrate for you real quick. Alexa, resume reading Stalag Sunflower. No rain is expected tonight. Chapter One. I've always hated getting old. The specter of death didn't bother me, though. I dislike the inevitable need for assistance, especially when my Alexa stop. So that's that's the idea. You, Alexa will read it for you, and you don't have to, you know, try to read it through a Kindle right. app. Okay. Could you spell the first? Uh, the first. Uh, I know how to spell sunflower, but can you spell the first word for oh, me? Sure. Sure, it's it's a German word. It's S T S T A L A G. Okay, all right. I'll I'll read it. Have you talked to uh, audio reader about reading it through them? No. They, they might talk, get talking books to read it. Well, you don't know when, though, and an audio reader and them were trying to work together. I was, you know, wondering if they might could work something out where they could, because it sounds to me like from what Mr. Lang said yesterday, they're not allowing very many people in there to do recordings. Well, I, you know, that's that's beyond my control. I can always uh, submit the idea. Yeah. <clears throat> I, you know, I'm just an author, Kathy. I don't know, you know, I could put it out there and say, would you do it? And then, you know, after that, it's up to the person who, who's in charge to make that decision. Roses. I'll send your information to Lori Kessinger. She's the, uh, she's not the right person, but she'll know who to get it to. Well, and that's the other thing. As an author, if I said that, it doesn't have near the power as a reader. Readers have a lot of power, and uh, 
So I would say if you want something in a certain format, you know, submit it to the, ask the people and the powers that be to, to get it done. Other questions? Thank you, Kathy. The moment there aren't any more hands. Well, we are, we are um, privileged to have you, Wes. Uh, we'll give away a copy of your book, and depending on who wins it, we will decide what format to get it in and whatnot. Michael, you want to choose a number? Oh, we're going to the door prize now? Sure. All right. Alexa, generate a random number between the numbers of 1 and 42. Your random number between one and one is one. Oh, God. Alexa, stop. <laughs> okay. I stopped the stream. <laughs> you stopped mine, too, and I didn't hear the number, so I got to do this again. Sorry. <laughs> oh, that's all right. <laughs> I'll, I'll go over and talk to... Uh, yeah, don't, don't talk so loud. Maybe Wes won't. Wes is okay, I'll you. go in the other room and talk to a different Alexa and get the number. Hold on just a minute. <laughs> Okay. I love this. <laughs> this could be the start of a story. The first Alexa that uh, we got, or Michael, I guess he had it in Wichita, too. And he was listening to an NPR thing on the radio, and it said her name, and she started talking. His Alexa started talking. And that happened yeah. I was looking at it on HSN and they'd say the A girl's name and she'd start talking on my You know, I just got a got a brilliant idea. I don't know if, if I could do it, but you could have a mystery story where Alexa solves the mystery. Oh yeah, you could. Or the war of the Furbies where they get together and you know, talk to each other and plan and <clears throat> 28, Mr. Bob. 28. Uh, from Rhyming. More. Okay. Wonderful. I will get in touch with her and see if mm -hmm. how she wants the book and we will get it to her. I did. And this has been wonderful. We're a little bit ahead of schedule, uh, ACB radio people, but I am uh, really grateful for all the hosts' help and all the presenters and the sponsors and the door prize contributors and all of you who stuck with us for two and a half days. I wish there had been more of us, but I can't do anything about that now. Um, I think unless somebody has a burning desire to talk about something else that we're going to conclude this meeting, do we have any raised hands? You do not. Okay. Thank you, hosts. Um, <clears throat> we will con say that the 101st Convention of Kansas Association for the Blind is over. <laughs>